0: Every Mac user is the smuggest bastard in the world. Viruses are never going to affect us. We're immune, whatever. And the reality of course, is some people feel that way. Most people who've looked at the situation at all know that Um, We're not immune, we've just been really lucky. It's just the target's been small. Apple does a good job upgrading um, and pushing people to upgrade. They support systems back many years. The target is so small, that it's usually not worthwhile for malware makers to target us. So that's been, our immunity is because we're insignificant as a target, not necessarily in absolute numbers. So this new thing is, this group at Cisco, Talos, um, or Talos, they uh, are one of many security firms that's constantly researching for weaknesses usually to help clients. They're, they uh, are trying to make sure their clients are protected. They find something. This fellow who um, had some communication with, Tyler uh, Bowen, uh, found five previously undiscovered, uh, fairly severe flaws in the way that image format files uh, get parsed. And the trouble was, like, three or four of them were reasonably severe, but you had to kind of open a file and whatever. But there's one related to TIFF. John, you've been using TIFF for your whole life, right? Since That's you were correct. born. <laughs> That's right. Ancient format. So there's a part of the, something in the parser. It, if you use a tiled TIFF file and it's formatted in this very specific, malicious fashion, uh, the uh, iOS and ostensibly OS 10, and probably I think the other two OSs are also patched, tvOS and watchOS, if it's rendered, it will actually. Uh, I think in that case, it's a memory, it's a buffer overflow, usual, typical old thing, and it can allow the potential for malicious code to execute uh, and you know take control of the machine and do whatever. And, Just by displaying the image. Yeah, and here's the reason it's considered particularly insidious: you could load it with a web page in Safari, you could o- have iMessages open, and somebody could text you know send you a text message with a TIFF in it. Um, there's a few other vectors, merely by rendering the preview, it would have to parse the file enough that this condition could be exploited. That sounds pretty horrific, right? That's, and that's why it was considered, it's considered very severe. And some discussion about how severe uh, in Apple's patch, they used responsible disclosure. It's not a zero day. Um, There aren't exploits in the wild. And uh, if you update to all the, all the current OSs, if you just update to the latest micro-release, you are protected against that particular TIFF exploit as well as the other four image format related exploits. I have so many follow-up points already. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, BMP well, format, BMP is actually also affected, which is kind of hilarious. Yeah. Like TIFF and BMP, nobody's looking at them, and I think they're just old yeah. implementations. Um, let me
1: see if I can keep them all in my head. One of them is, yes, I used to use, as you know, and I know you have the ink-stained hands as well, it, I came <laughs> from a world of print design, and in the world of print design in the 90s, TIFF was the de facto format, for at least for line art, um, yeah. for any kind of bitmap. Um, everything went from through Photoshop into TIFF before it went into production. Uh, But it's sort of a notorious file format, because I seem to recall vaguely that over the years, there have been an awful lot of uh, uh, security issues like this that have to do with TIFF parsing.
0: That is my recollection as well. I didn't go back and look it up, but I I think it's that old code thing. Like, people wrote TIFF parsers in 1980s, early 1990s, or late 1980s, maybe, probably late 1980s. And the parsers, the basic code is probably mostly unchanged in a lot of ways for 30 years.
1: And it's probably a very difficult format. It's probably a poor say, format spec. That's my guess. That, therefore, yeah, it-, it makes it hard to write the easy to write, uh, not easy to write, hard to write a parser and easy to make mistakes with memory management in the, the handling of the parser. So anyway, yeah, for- all right, here's another point. Because it's such a weird old format and it's it was never really part of the web in, in any way, Um I'm very surprised that iOS and WatchOS even have Tiff parsing code.
0: I know. I, 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 am. This is part of the um, like the Quick Look thing, though. Like everything in um, all the different OSs support Quick Look for you know every major file type, and includes some weird image formats and other things that you you know might never be previewing, but you can preview uh, raw images in some cases, PNGs. Are they DNG files? One of the digital formats. Mm-hmm. Um, all these things. PNG, by the way. When that specification, portable network graphics, that's kind of TIFF's replacement because it has all the different kinds of things you need lossless and lossy and different alpha, whatever. In the specifications, I met one of the people who wrote the spec years ago, 1990s. It says ping is pronounced ping in the specs. There's no question. <laughs> How else could you
1: pronounce it? PNG, I, I guess. I
0: don't the, know. The, the giant, only other way
1: you, yeah, the only other way I could think you could pronounce it would be PN or, or, just saying the initials png
0: i, I pronounce it pang i don't know it's just you know someone would find a way ping is, a, is ping
1: ping is an odd historical success because yeah. a lot of times when when people get together in the open and say you know it's there's even like an xkcd comic about it where it's like we have way too many specs and they all stink <laughs> you know what the solution is a new spec uh, uh, you just add to the pile usually, even if it's a noble goal. Whereas Ping had the noble goal of saying we've got a couple of bitmap image uh, files formats that are out there being used, and they are all terrible for certain for one reason or another. Yeah. On the web, we had GIF files, and don't even tell me that you're a GIF person. Oh my God! You? Oh, are you are God. you a GIF person? I'm choosy programmers choose GIF. That's, oh, that's the GIF. It's a graphic image change <laughs> interchange format. Uh, anyway, it's a GIF file. Um, uh, terrible. Just, uh, I, I mean, uh, uh, horrendous format. I mean, you can only have 256 colors at a time. I mean, it's it's goofy. Um, it was, or, it was it, great.
0: It was great, say, J- it was great for CompuServe. It's juicy. It was great for CompuServe because yes. I was a CompuServe user. Were you? I can't remember. Were you a CompuServe? No, I was
1: never on CompuServe.
0: Okay. No. So I can't. For a long time, I could remember my five comma four digit address it begins with seven i've totally lost that's one of the problems with asia i cannot remember my 1979 CompuServe <laughs> login. login makes me sense but on CompuServe it was great it was dial-up we had like i don't know 1200 baud modems or 1200 bps modems something like that it was a great compact format when you had and it was it rendered you know rendered in a way that made sense like line at a time or interlacing was you know all and these things com- GIF, most computers E9A, only had
1: most computers only had 16 color displays, so. Yeah, it was you, perfect
0: for the day and it's astonishing that it still is great. But yeah, right. ping, and you remember uh, the most boring thing in the world, this uh, LZW algorithm was right. patented and Unisys tried to enforce it and ping is an outcome of right. efforts to patent. The patent expired in, I had to look it up 2003 because I'm already right. gone off. Um, but that was part of the issue. Like TIFF used LZW, which meant how to be licensed, uh, GIF was being attacked or potentially unisys wanted to license it uh i believe lzw may have been one of the early attempts to uh one of the issues like business me- not business method patents but it was a software-ish patent algorithm patents. Yeah. so there were some issues there
1: anyway yeah and it came if, out of that and historically we're getting sidetracked here but it's all good stuff the, no. the, the his- <laughs> it was uh it was a big story locally because unisys yeah. is a philadelphia area company at least they were oh, yeah. i don't know if they still are um so it was a big story locally um but the gist of it is that they own the patents behind, or or patents that were part of fundamental part of the GIF, GIF <laughs> format. I got you. <laughs> uh, you, son of a bitch. Uh, and they never enforced it, and it, you know, people there were the GIF being displayed and parsed and created. You know, and every image editing tool, and it was all over the place. And then Netscape added, you know, put support in to render them in, um, you know, mosaic or whatever the you know whatever the first one of their browsers that had images, uh, which was a big deal. It was actually yeah. a big deal when they yeah. added image tags to it to the web browser. Oh my uh, god! Uh, and they waited until like all of a sudden, like when the internet exploded and everybody was buying, you know. Uh, like Adam Mank's internet book, and everybody is like, "I'm going to get on the internet." And Bill Gates is writing a memo that we're going to, you know, turn the whole, you know, Microsoft around at the internet, internet, internet. And then all of a sudden, somebody at Unisys was like, "Hey, we own a patent for this." <laughs> and the, web, the 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 open community responded and said, "We've got to create a new format." And they did it. They did it quickly. They got support into all the tools quickly, and yeah, ping took over the world as it was supposed to very quickly, and that almost never happens.
0: It's and ping is such a great format in a lot of ways. I mean, I think it's funny that it didn't actually ultimately replace everything, uh, except L, except JPEG. But um, it's just it's great. It does all the different kinds as you know, two modes yeah. you can do twenty four bit with alpha transparency, and it, it's just. Um, it's not quite as compact, I think, as GIF for the same thing. But, uh, yeah, patents. Patents uh, are issues. It almost came up, you remember, with um, the, uh, the committee that runs the, uh, what is it, H.264, whatever the underlying patents are there. There's a patent pool. But I think there was, at one point, there was a question about whether if you used, um, if you displayed H.264 video on your site without going through a third-party package like Adobe flash for instance which wraps it that you might actually owe separate licensing fees and using flash one of the reasons that flash was successful uh, is because adobe handled the licensing for video patents or at least they said they did i think that fact was overlooked because the you know flash is so terrible but it meant there was no if you were a you know cbs or something if you put it in flash your lawyers must have assured you it's cool we don't have any fees if you'd used HTML5 as if it existed to show, you know, to directly stream uh, that kind of format, I think there might have been a patent issue. Now that's been resolved since the patent holders okay. changed it, so they wouldn't, you know, poop in the pool. But I seem um, to remember that. You know, it's it's always
1: a good sign when the lawyers are making engineering decisions <laughs> for your. Yeah, it's great. Your web technologies.
0: It's great. I like that's,
1: that. No one could go wrong. <laughs> uh, oh. All right, back to the security issue. So, okay.
0: uh,
1: so all of apple's operating systems uh, were were vulnerable to this threat. so
0: it's yeah there. all the current ones and also um two previous versions of os 10 were tested it's possible that older versions are um also vulnerable and they just didn't test them i don't have the clarity on that uh, because the uh, particular library may go back a bazillion you know years it could be back to 10.6 or 10.0 for all we know um
1: but there are no actual exploits in the wild, right? Or not, at least none that are known.
0: None that are known. Uh, it's possible. So I talked to the folks at, at the Cisco division directly because I could not find... I saw this covered. So you know how this works. Uh, something happens related to Apple. Uh, and uh, the news story is Apple computers burst into flame. That's like the next day. It's like, well, it was one computer in a lab. It was under controlled circumstance. Uh, no, no. Apple computers burst into flame. So... The Apple releases these uh, updates and then the engineer at Cisco, or sorry, Talos is the division. He writes up a, uh, he, the guy is in charge of this team who, who's credited with the discovery by Apple. So it meant he used responsible disclosure, reported it months ago, Apple patched it all, everything's cool. He writes up a very detailed blog post that explains the severity and then has some details about exactly what gets dumped. He puts some, you know, core dump information in or traces and things and, um, people like, you know, the register and Forbes and whatever, right? These it's stage fright for Apple, you know, which is Android still is wrestling with stage fright, which was an MMS deliverable among other vectors. a way to you send a, Maliciously formatted message for Android 2.2 and every subsequent system, uh, and the problem with upgrading older Android systems and on and on, right? So stage fright remains, it's possible there's a couple hundred million Android devices that remain susceptible to, to stage fright. It's a big deal. And there were uh, viruses that were discovered in the wild within, I think, weeks of the first stage fright, fright release, uh, and then uh, months later, some more for uh, un- devices that couldn't be patched.
1: This it uh, touches on one of my... Uh, very most precious pet themes in, in what I write about, like in media criticism, which is mm. fa- false equivalence. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's a huge issue in politics and it's definitely an issue in the tech world too. And it's this idea that to be fair uh, or, or, sin it more cynically to, to sensationalize the story, because I think everybody knows that putting Apple into headlines gets more clicks. Um, so Android had stage fright or has stage fright, you know, and has this issue that is actually being exploited in a world. And there are lots, not most, you know, I'm not, nobody is saying that every Android phone out there is hacked or even most of them are, but that there are many people with Android devices that have malware un, perhaps even unbeknownst to the user because of this exploit. Then Apple has this, you know, Cisco discovers this, you know, security problem in Apple's, operating systems and it's presented as though it's you know like you just said they they're actually calling it apple's version of stage fright even though there aren't any known exploits
0: right the the right it's a great narrative and there are similarities except sandboxing and code signing and so forth there's a lot of spaces that are different in terms of how Android deals with incoming everything or, you know, malicious software that's trying to execute on a system. There's other protections. Even if you manage to deliver a payload, you may just crash a process. Right. So the, you know, I talked to the engineer, I went back and forth through email. I had to go through the PR folks. And, um, you know, it's like, is there a proof of concept? Because with stage fright, the researchers who did that delivered an effective proof of proof of concept showing not just that they could crash a process or overwrite a buffer, but that they could actually commit acts and gain root. If I recall some Android systems, you could get root and some behalf, you could, uh, take control of the microphone and things like that. So there were ways to get access to system resources, even if you couldn't potentially gain root. Uh, and the Talos researcher said, you know, in effect, we have a, you know, provable exploit that allows us to do nasty stuff with Safari and OS 10. And the reporting had been about MMS, uh, but they have no exploit for that. They think there are some major hurdles in the way that might be able to be overcome. They weren't focusing on that because they knew it was going to be patched. They focused on something where they had a path already to do it. They suspect that the Safari plus OS 10 pathway would also let them exploit uh, iOS and a Safari, mobile Safari. Um, they haven't tested it, but everything seems the same. They think there may be a few more bars in the way there too, that could be overcome. This is all with the unpatched version. So, you know, the truth is this is that it's getting back to at the beginning is It's a severe bug. You know, a few years ago, Apple had some Wi-Fi bugs where you could drive by and do terrible things to someone's Wi-Fi network and gain access and, you know, do all kinds of stuff to an airport base station or Mac, or sorry, Macintoshes. If you could just gain access, you know, just have physical proximity. And
1: it's it's especially terrifying because you don't actually have to be in their house. You just have to be within range of their Wi-Fi, which could be, you know, in a car
0: in front of their house. Yeah, you just put a high gain antenna out the window and, and you can do it. And those, they were patched and people have the same argument then. And this happened since I think in a lot of times is how severe is it? If the threat is over, it's like, well, this is very severe. We don't know the, ex- it's, it's severe as an exploit. You know, these things really are doing something really terribly wrong. They shouldn't do and shouldn't be in the code. That's true. And conceivably it's a pathway. And The next steps are in the lab or, you know, malware could be developed that would then Uh, take advantage of it. We could find out how severe in practice it is. In theory, it's very severe, but because of responsible disclosure and Apple being able to patch it in a timely manner, there's no evidence. Anything is in the wild. That said, this is the kind of thing when the, what um, was it, uh, I'm blanking out in the group in Italy that uh, had all its files. Hacking, uh, ex- the hacking, hacking team. Hacking team yeah. or something like that. Yeah, those guys, and it's been true of some other outfits that have had leaked information. These, you know, there's all these companies, it's individual researchers and companies that exist to find zero days and sell them to governments, right, and governments are also working on similar things. It's possible things like this are already completely known, to, maybe even to right. multiple parties, and they're being deployed against some Iranian official, or American official, or Chinese official, or a company for uh, you know for uh, industrial espionage. And it's being specifically deployed in a very quiet way, in which it allows them to exfiltrate information uh, or or you know tap communications. But the it's not uh, if that's the case that hasn't been found yet. Maybe it will now that the bug is known virus signatures will get updated people find it but so it's not in the wild
1: yeah there's the 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 most obvious uh source of malware the one that we see and hear about most often is the one that's sort of stuff that's sort of out in the open where it's it's just almost like you almost want to say like more like common criminals who um either find exploits like this so that you can go through a, you know, a page or certainly, you know, email, click link, you know, click this link in an email. And if you're using a certain type of computer that has a known, uh, uh, exploit just by clicking the link, you know, you're, you're, you've got malware on your computer and what does the malware do? A lot of times it sets up like a botnet or something like that. And it's, it's like a shotgun approach to, the crime where they're trying to just get hundreds and thousands of random people. They don't even care who you are to run this and, you know, steal your bitcoins or whatever they want to do. Um, that's the, you know, the stuff that we see, the part that, you know, the paranoid part of my mind is the, well, what about the Chinese government? The Chinese government would be, you know, are they employing people to find exploits like this? Uh, of course they are. Right. I mean, who, who does anybody believe they're not? Does anybody think the NSA doesn't have, uh, really, really smart people doing this exact same thing? Uh, you know, and then there's the companies, not just governments, but companies like the hacking team that you mentioned that sell their services, you know, to governments and stuff like that. But, you know, find these zero days and then hold, you know, instead of letting them loose, they, they're they like a precious commodity. I mean, I think last year somebody was actually like in the public was saying, you know, I, I we're going to pay a million dollars if you can find an exploit for iOS 9 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, a legitimate, I mean, sort of legitimate. I mean, it's sort of a scummy underside of the world. But, you know, a, a, a serious offer, a legitimate offer for a million dollars if you could deliver them an exploit that would let them do what X, was, Y, and Z.
0: Does it, jailbreaking often falls to that, right? Is there's companies that make a lot of money off um, third-party app stores for jailbroken uh uh, iPhones, I think. And so there's money to be made if you get the, the, uh, the exploit first, uh, the jailbreak, uh, um, pathway yeah. first, some of them sell jailbreaking. It's funny. Jailbreaking went from a very innocent enterprise in the early days to something that is now all enmeshed in viruses and criminal enterprise and so forth. Yeah. Uh, there's still, I'm sure legitimate people out there doing jailbreaking, but, um, Everything I read about it makes it sound like you don't know when you download the jailbreak tools I, what they're going to do.
1: I was talking to friend of the show Craig Hockenberry at ah, yes. uh, WWDC, and we were laughing, thinking, like reminiscing to ten years ago when the iPhone was new about how we all jailbroke our phones. <laughs> like oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> like, we all jailbroke our phones at the, oh, before God. the the first C four conference because. Uh, it, that somebody had created like a, a the the Lights Out game, there, and it was a really nice game. Like it was just like a there was no there was no <laughs> there was no Xcode for iOS yet. I mean, these are some really smart oh, yeah. people. Yeah, and there were no public, uh, no public tools at all to create iOS software. And somehow, oh my you god! Know, and and Craig uh, eventually, you know, Watt during but, the jailbreak era got uh, Twitterific working
0: so oh like and of
1: course so of course i jailbroke my phone because then i had an iphone with twitterific on it and this is before you could you know have apps i mean of course i jailbroke um but it
0: was you know it just seemed <laughs>
1: it was a lot easier too
0: <laughs> innocent days back right. when it was just us kids playing around with the phone right. um sidebar counselor uh eff has just filed a lawsuit about um Section 1201 of the DMCA, which I'm sure you're aware of. I Hold saw up, the announcement. Yeah. Uh, it's, so, you know, DMCA, Digital Money and Copyright Act, which I think is a largely unconstitutional piece of legislation that has never been fully tested. If the Supreme Court ever got its hands on it, I got to say, there's so many things in there that that uh, give they privilege commercial speech at the in the face of free speech, and whenever I've seen anything yeah. like it that's been decided by high courts, you know, either appeals or up the Supreme Court, it's usually, even if I don't agree with the decision entirely, it usually opens up the way for more speech, meaning more encoded speech that's sort of now been encoded at a certain level of you know the court systems, even if it's not. Totally understood. So one provision of the DMCA is this reverse engineering thing related to digital rights management. And if you put DRM on something as a manufacturer, it's illegal and you can be sent to jail four years for, for I'm sorry, four years, not for four years. I forget. See if it's like five years, I think. Uh, if you reverse engineer it, even for yourself, like in the privacy of your own home, the FBI breaks in, you've been breaking DRM and not distributing it, you go to jail. And uh, there's a provision called Section 1201, which is the most hilarious thing in the world. Every three years, more or less, uh, the Librarian of Congress holds hearings, not them personally. And the last, you know, we just got a new one. Isn't this awesome? The Senate actually approved the confirmation. Uh, new Librarian of Congress understands technology, has run a library system. She's the voice of the future. This is going to be great. The guy who's been in charge for decades has been kind of a know-nothing Luddite, just terrible in terms of the technology side great in terms of books anyway so the section 1201 hearings it's a circus you have the the process described in the law is terrible so the library of congress uh created a process that um basically people who object to uh, limitations and want to get them removed temporarily, only for a three-year period, have to essentially file something like a legal brief, although it can be in more plain language explaining why there's a legitimate public interest to be served uh, in providing an exemption. And then the librarian, so they have this circus, they have hearings, and people parade through and they testify. And their, last time, I think there were 47 different subgroup. Um, items being presented and it's just, and it's, you know, farming it's companies like John Deere who have DRM on their tractors, automakers, video game makers, um printer companies, uh, as well as the software and, uh, I, you know, like iPhone locking and the rest of it. And, uh, and then there's people who, you know, file these objections and there's back and forth, and then the Library of Congress issues a set of, uh, rules about what's going to be exempted, if anything, in the next three year period. It's a ridiculous process. So the EFF is suing, uh, basically on the unconstitutionality of the, of this provision, and if it were. Struck down or even minimize, it would dramatically enhance the ability of people to do self repair, which is, you know, uh, Kyle Ween's at uh, I Fix It. He's been a huge proponent and deeply active in this process, and um, you can read a lot of stuff about right to repair that relates a lot to DRM these days. Uh, I the specific
1: provision in the D. Digital, D-A-M-C-A, not D-C-M-A.
0: D-D- yeah, digital, because Mo- it was-
1: uh, Millennium Copyright. Was Sunny? Um,
0: I can't remember if Sonny Bono was involved in that one, but maybe. Well, might <laughs> There's have a been. Sonny Bono law also, but that's a different
1: one. Uh, it's specifically, it more or less outlaws backwards reverse engineering how D-R-M works. And yeah. reverse engineering is, it, it, you know, here, you've got this thing, you own it. Are you allowed to try to figure out how it works? And and that's, you know, it's I think that's been considered part of, you know- uh, I guess free speech, but certainly seems like something that, you know, I don't know, the engineer in me objects to, we've got this magic thing called, uh, you know, a copyright for our movies and music, and it gets a special exemption for this that nothing else has.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I just learned something, and that's terrible because it keeps uh, innovation. You know, how did everything interesting happen that's going on? You know, some people point to giant corporate research labs. So many interesting things we're doing in technology came from people tinkering at little stuff that they took apart, right? I saw Kate McKinnon, right. who I love. We're going to talk about Ghostbusters later, right? We'll talk about Ghostbusters. I have not but... seen the movie okay. yet, though. We'll talk about the movie. We'll talk... We're will we going to talk about right. Twitter or whatever. Okay, Kate McKinnon, yeah. yeah, yeah. I am one of the my one of the few people who still watches SNL. I watch it, and Lynn and I, my wife, we fast forward, we tape it, we watch it like a few days later. We fast forward through the bad stuff. There are a bunch of really great performers. And a lot of people our age have given up on SNL long. Like it's I, the, you know we are we're,
1: we're big SNL fans here. In oh,
0: good, yeah. And it, it's hit or miss, as you know. Sometimes you're watching an entire episode, you're like, where I don't even know what happened, it, and then another time you're crying for. It's always been like that. It's always been. You're totally right. And I have this, I have the same memory of, no, wasn't it always? No, it wasn't. So Kate McKinnon, you love her then because you watch it. She's an incredible mimic and she's great in Ghostbusters. She is such a, I've seen her interviewed. I just think she is so great. And we're at the beginning of her breakout part of her career, like Kristen Wiig already had, right? And this is it. So Kate McKinnon, I see this interview. She's on the red carpet for Ghostbusters and this tiny little girl, which must be like eight or nine is doing interviews and she asked Kate McKinnon a question and Kate McKinnon looks so touched and in love and then looks at her very seriously and gives her this answer. And the girl said, what was it like to work around all this cool technology in the movie? And Kate McKinnon said, when I was a kid, I used to love to take things apart, radios, things i look at the circuit boards and whatever. And this whole movie, I walk in, everything is circuit boards and it's just, yeah. it was a dream. It was like my childhood again, something like that. And I'm thinking that is the kind of thing that kids kids today, they don't know. They're not encouraged to take things apart. They could actually be violating the law if yeah. they were to, no, on the software side to circumvent things. Literally, these kids could be violating federal law for doing the stuff that you and I did yeah. and all, I'd, you know, millions and millions of other children. It did. is
1: certainly the case that the overwhelming majority of all people have almost no curiosity about how things work.
0: Which, which is fine. Which right, is fine.
1: but for the minority of people who are curious about how things work those also tend to be the sort of people who create new things you know and i I mean you could i I think you could find that with creative people in like you said entertainers even entertainers that's it's just like a mindset of i would like to take that apart
0: (laughs) it is a very refinishing tables too she's got a crafty aspect to her she does
1: um so my take on it is that uh I think it's. It, I object philosophically to the idea that you should outlaw being able to take things apart and figure out how they work. But on the flip side, I also think that the people who make things have every right to make them as difficult to take apart, or as you know, you know, uh, uh, like in the case with Apple and cell phone encryption. That if Apple can figure out a way to mathematically make the contents of a phone uh, effectively uh, unbreakable encryption wise, they have the right to do that. And the NSA has a right to try to find the holes in their logic. Oh, and-
0: yeah. I don't I don't think manufacturers should be obliged to make it easy. I think right. that could be a marketing strategy and some do that. I was talking to a company that I can't reveal that said because of various regulations, they're not allowed to promote the fact that their product is modifiable because it would actually put them in violation and put them in a new regulatory framework. However, they can make their product vi- uh, modifiable, including the firmware, and they just can't say anything about it. Hmm. So they are actually doing everything they can. Uh, a great example is uh, that I can talk about Chumbi, which is Bunny Huang, who's one of the uh, plaintiffs in the EFF uh, suit that's coming up. Bunny uh, lives in Singapore. I think he still lives in Singapore. He goes to Shenzhen all the time. He's a hands on designer. He's been designing an open laptop that's just fascinating. It's not, there's a little ideology in it, but it's also an incredible technical exercise. He was one of the people behind Chumbi, which was, uh, was originally this kind of soft, alarm clock that you could make apps for like many years ago. This. Yeah. And it went through a lot of revisions. It's still out there. A company, so they left everything in such a state that when the product didn't succeed, people could keep it alive. And then a new company came in to support it. And then that company is now making new chumbi stuff and running the servers. Um, because enough was open and available. I don't think the whole thing was open source. I'm forgetting all the details, but they had left everything open enough and then I think when it was shutting down they opened it even further. And I'm like that was was a wonderful thing. So as a company, you could choose to do that, but you can also choose to be, you know, rat bastards or pursue security, let's say, whichever you want and uh, not make it easy. That's totally, I mean, I don't, I don't think being, there's a difference there. Like should Apple allow third party apps that are not sold from its store? I should say non-app source apps. That's a whole interesting debate. And there's an argument to be made that they should be required, even if they have to put hurdles in and switches and you have to agree, you're going to avoid your warranty or whatever. That's separate from should Apple let its firmware be ha- you know hackable? That's a very different situation. They they shouldn't pursue people who have broken into it. That's where the DRM issue lies. Rather than they should make it easy, which is a sort of philosophical ideological right. situation. Right. Um, all
1: right, and that's where I disagree with uh, what's his name Wines from uh, the. Uh, Mac fix it.
0: What's oh, it yeah called? I, I, yeah, I fix it. all oh, right like, it. So the, like the pentalobe screw thing was a big, that was an inflection point, right? Is right. Apple switched to pentalobe screws. It was hard to get such a screwdriver. Then I fix it made it, which is great. But K- Kyle maintained, I think that, uh, if I'm right, right, yeah, he, he, uh, he said, Apple is doing this to make it hard to repair. Some people said, maybe it's because it's easier to do machine creation, but that was, you know, machine uh, assembly. That's who knows, but it definitely made it harder to repair. And then, you know, channel lobe screwdrivers got made and now it's possible. But um, I agree that Apple probably does some things to make it harder for third, for consumers and third parties to make changes and other things. I think it's, they don't care. They just engineer it because they know they're going to repair it. So they don't give a damn if it's hard because they'll take care of it.
1: Right. I think that there's a, it's, it's funny because that's a perfect example. And, and I, I try to be like this as much as I can. So I disagree with, with Kyle on, on his take on this. But I'm intrigued by his argument, and yeah, I don't, oh yeah. you know I don't think that I don't d- d- say this guy is an idiot. I, I I disagree with him. I do believe that he's wrong, but I I always do enjoy re- reading his pieces arguing about
0: it. Oh, he's pushing. And he pushes the the he right. pushes the envelope in a way that's good for everybody, even if you disagree with them. There's nothing wrong with the idea that Apple could roll back to Phillips head screws. Like that doesn't make things worse for anyone, even if you disagree with why they switched to Pentalobe. Um I want to point that since we're in a sidebar, we're sort of sidebaring a sidebar, there's a great piece about warranties and motherboard last month. I don't know if you saw this, how Sony, Microsoft, and other gadget makers violate federal warranty law. No. I am going to send you right, a URL. The um, this is a great piece. I never knew this. Uh, most, uh, all the things that say, break the seal and you violate warranty are actually either illegal or unenforceable. Hmm. I had no idea. The Magnus- I did not know that either. 1970 law called the Magnuson Moss Warranty Act. Federal law says you can open your electronics without voiding the warranty regardless of the, what the language of that warranty says. People should read this because I was had At, my mind blown. Every single hard
1: drive I've ever purchased has a sticker like that somewhere on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I yeah. always thought that it was kind of reasonable for like a hard drive because it, especially in the spinning disc era, if you open up, if you get to the point where you open up and expose the disc and it, and it picks up dust and then doesn't work right. Well, why shouldn't your warranty be? Violated? Oh yeah.
0: It, it's not that, but it's the thing is the warranty isn't de facto violated by, By breaking the seal, and that's the thing, and or even doing repair. The the um, the article notes, and they got some great you know uh, liability lawyers, lemon law lawyers, talk about it. Is the manufacturer has to prove that your whatever you did caused the failure? Ah, gotcha. That's so that so they can do that. They can say there's dust on the drive. There wasn't dust originally. It worked when you got it. So screw you.
1: I see that going back to Kyle Wines. I I think his argument would be bolstered if he stopped attributing malice to Apple and simply stated why he thinks these would be better devices with standard screws. And I know one of his other bugaboos is the use of glue. Uh, oh yeah. You know, and to, you know, make, just make the argument that this would be a better device for everybody if, you know, they, they stopped using glue and stuff like that. And, oh yeah, and should- instead of saying that they're doing this to make it hard to repair, Apple does not care about the repair shops. They don't. Yeah. They, they, they give no shits. It's <laughs> Time. tiny. Yeah. And
0: yeah, it's also like this is a case. I, uh, this, is, I'm, this is not a sidebar. I swear to God. I'm like the biggest parentheses Nestor is, you know. Um, but Walt Hickey wrote this great piece at, I think he's at 538. I think that's right. About, um, he's, I love his writing. And he wrote this thing about how IMDb uh, movies, uh, movie scores are, um, are sunk by male trolls. Because Hmm. he did the analysis and you can see that men more highly uh, downvote or give poor ratings to movies that women like better, than, and women do not do the same thing to male films, uh, films that men like better. So you can look at films that more men have seen, there's gender split, you know, and so forth, and uh, you can do that analysis and figure it out. And the article is really interesting, but the one thing I disagree with him on is he was attributing malice. He said, effectively, that men are trolling as opposed to internalizing their own toxic masculinity and voting stuff down because they thought no one should see it, sort of the Mm. Ghostbusters thing. Again, like, well, if you have haven't seen the movie and you're voting to three, you're kind of a troll, but some people may have may have, may have seen it. You don't know how many haven't seen it and how have and right. whatever. I feel like the same thing with a bit with people who attribute things to Apple. If you know, if you could pull it out and say, um, I talked to, or, you know, if in, or if an Apple engineer goes public and says, I worked at Apple for yeah. 20 years and the things my, we did to screw repair firms, right. then, my, then you could say malice.
1: My job was to make it uh difficult or impossible to you replace your screen at a third-party facility because apple the, <laughs> wants the hundred dollar uh replacement fee
0: i was the extra glue engineer at apple the right. continuing glue engineer um before <laughs> this is good i think i can unwind i want to go back
1: to the um the security bug yeah so all the way, all the way back to this, this <laughs> responsible. What do you? What is it called? Responsible?
0: Uh, is it like I don't know? I may know if this is right phrase. Like responsible disclosure policy. Yes, is right. what right. I'd label it.
1: So, in some aspect, though, it's not responsible because the only things that are updated are the very latest update to the OS. I'm talking to you right now on through an iMac that has not been updated because I didn't feel like restarting my Mac before we started the show. Right. Right. So my. The Mac I'm talking to you on right now is not updated. Uh my iPhone is. I thoroughly doubt that my son's or wife's iPhones are. Uh I pretty sure my iPad is not because I haven't oh no, well it might because I'm running iOS 10 beta. So I don't know. But I i I have devices. I'm technically adept and I in tune to the news. Uh, and I have devices that aren't updated yet and let alone anybody who hasn't updated to, um, uh, El Capitan yet. If you're running, El, you know, El, uh, what was the one before,
0: uh, uh Yosemite, I don't I have, <laughs> have to keep looking it up.
1: Um, uh, you know, you're still, you're still vulnerable, um, and I don't know if Apple, you know, nobody knows because Apple won't say, but whether Apple's going to do a security update for those things either. So yeah, in some sense, them. I often wonder about disclosing these things, you know, whether it's it's good or bad.
0: Well there's a yeah, there's a couple different uh aspects to it, right? If there's a zero day um, you know, which just for the benefit of listeners who don't know, a zero day is an exploit that is known as a, something is patched. So the patch comes out and it's known um that it's in a it's in malware that's being used right so uh it has to be patched immediately because you have to protect people who are in active danger so this is not a zero day uh, there's no known attacks in the wild i haven't seen anything in the last couple of days that suggested anyone had managed to exploit this in any broad way and we'd know that because mac users and ios users if it had been sent out as general malware would have been reporting i've been hijacked or whatever because right. malware distributors are not subtle typically there'd be ransomware i mean the big thing right now is ransomware as you know i've been writing about that recently got a couple articles on it and um, anyway so we so uh this isn't a zero day but this is the tricky part like if you don't think that it's in the wild like you're working for a security company there's no reports of this coming out That even analyzing you've found it you know proactively in advance or you know prospectively um and you know the patch has been made and distributed, so anyone can get it has it. that removes the financial incentive for any criminal to criminal organization to try to find an exploit because the window is closing so fast, like you know twenty five percent of it 's closed in the first few hours, and it, a- Apple pushes updates so heavily and makes it hard to ignore them, especially in iOS and uh, other platforms that the odds of having a target are very small, so you spend weeks or maybe months developing the payload, uh, the exploit technology to deliver the correct payload, and by then 93% of people have updated and you have you know a couple hundred thousand people you have to reach, and even spam and phishing doesn't make it worthwhile to send out the messages to reach a fraction of them. So the economics of it are bad when it's not a zero day. When it's a zero day, you disclose because it's so dangerous and right. you want everyone to patch right away, and the economics there change instantly too, but there's exploits out there that will be tried to be put out as fast as they can before people patch. Uh, let me take a break here
1: and thank our first sponsor. I love this is a brand new sponsor and it is a great app. It's called boom. It's a Mac app from global delight. Have you ever wished that the audio playing through your Mac could be richer, crisper, and just better? Uh, if you like listening to music, movies, videos through your Mac or any other audio, then you may have searched for ways to boost the volume on your Mac, but haven't found anything yet. Well, that's what Boom does. It's an amazing audio enhancer for the Mac. It is simple. It's gorgeous. has great looking UI. These guys at Global Delight have always, uh, always done really, really high end. You know, classic indie Mac developer attention to detail, and and all the icons look great and everything like that. Um, so it's just a volume booster. That's it. Just. It works on a system-wide level, so you don't have to uh, install it like inside Act apps. It's not a plug-in or anything like that. Uh, and anything you play on your Mac t- suddenly sounds amplified. Uh, it works with headphones, it works with speakers, uh, and and the best part, this it's a MacWorld Best of Show winner. This is an app that has been renowned. It really it you know it sounds almost like snake oil, but it really does work. It, it's won the MacWorld Best of Show back when MacWorld was a show. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the best part. Anyway, I keep I'm talking in circles here, but the best part is right now for a very limited period, I don't quite know how limited the period is. So if you hear it, you better go get it now. It is 33% off in their store. It's just $9.99. It's usually 15 bucks. Uh, you, where do you go? Here's their URL. It's a bit.ly URL. So go to bit.ly, bit.ly, slash, boom2mac. That's the digit two. bit.ly, slash, Boom to Mac, and you will get more info. They have a seven-day free trial. Can you believe that? Seven-day free trial. What a It's like in the world of the App Store, it's like you forget about free trials. Well, guess what? That's why the Mac is awesome. Seven-day free trial. Try it, listen to it, see that you like it, and then you can get it for 33% off. That's Boom 2. That's what, the reason the 2 is in the URL. This is version 2 of the app. Boom 2, 33% off, bit.ly slash Boom to Mac. It's a great app. Um, we were talking before about the sort of um, not mis—I don't know what you would call it—but the idea that Mac users are smug, insufferably smug on security <laughs> issues. <laughs> it's
0: so true, uh,
1: and it, that's another one that's sort of like a pet issue of mine. Is is the uh, incessant inevitable need to boil everything down to a binary it's either this or that either the mac is completely invulnerable to malware and security exploits or the mac is every bit as vulnerable and exploitable as every other system that's out there uh when the truth is in between it is nuanced you know and it was a lot i you still see it and and part of it is that ios is so spectacularly popular and such a lucrative target but in the old days pre iphone it was always almost always boiled down to an argument that the mac you know windows has all this malware problems all these issues and and all this you know the the and i don't even think it was snake oil i think it was a reasonable thing that you know informed users would agree with was that it was considered uh, a standard practice to install antivirus on your windows pc that if you didn't you were a fool and you were probably going to get exploited
0: oh yeah remember when you'd install a virtual windows machine on your mac in parallels and then you'd launch it and it would get infected before you could install the antivirus software (laughs) that happened happened to me
1: it's, it's, it's it's no exaggeration uh and then Mac users, informed Mac users uh, like myself would say, well, I, I, I don't run any antivirus on my Mac. And in fact, I, recommend, I, I don't recommend my family members do. And I don't think you should either. Um, and I don't think you need to. And then they would say, well, you're an idiot. Because the, <laughs> only, the only reason the Mac doesn't get exploited is that it's, it's every bit as vulnerable as Windows. But it's, it's too small for the malware people to care about. And it's like you can't disprove that. That's one of those. It's like a I don't know what the rhetorical description of that is, but it's it's sort of like a straw man argument. You can't knock it down. You can't disprove a a hypothetical like that. Yeah. There's no way to prove it otherwise, except if the Mac got as popular as Windows, and that's sort of happened. That sort of happened with iOS, right? iOS has you know hundreds of millions, or I guess a billion active devices. there might be, now that I think about it,
0: there might be more iOS devices in use than Windows devices. I don't know. That might be ridiculous. Uh, but it's, I, think, I think there's more Windows, because Windows things are never, there's like right. people running Windows 95 still right. someplace. So those, uh, it's in the ballpark, though. Probably running air traffic control or something. <laughs> it
1: is in the ballpark. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And it didn't happen. I mean, now there is malware for Mac. There is malware that attacks iOS, but it's never been as rampant a problem as it has been on other platforms.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, it, I I've always said, I shouldn't say always, but I've said increasingly. Let's say as time has gone by, I've said increasingly like, Apple was a weird target, and we had vi- where we the first viruses to come to the computers, so the first widespread uh, the worms and things It was through uh, Macs, right? We had the the one that you stuck a disk in, it would write it to the floppy disk. Yes, I, think, I, and-
1: was, I have I'm in my notes <laughs> here. I, do you remember what? Do you remember there was it's a not time. Happening. There was a time when I did run antivirus on my
0: Mac, and I yeah. did
1: recommend everybody do it. It was called Disinfectant, and
0: yeah, it was oh, I love that. Yeah, awesome. those guys. Yeah. So oh no, time. it was
1: one guy. It was like a guy up in Seattle, right?
0: Oh, you're so right. Because did he charge for no, it? No, it free. was free. What was his it? Was name? Great. It was as good as the commercial solutions for a long time. John Norsted. Nor- oh, oh, wow, that's a good memory. I think that's right. I'm a very nice guy, if I recall, too. A really nice guy.
1: I mean, like. Uh, it, it's just amazing that it was just, and it was this free utility. You did uh, like an init. You would uh, Norstad, in it. John I, Norstad. I miss an sort of here's his homepage, John Norstad's homepage. uh where He is. Uh, hey. I will put this in the show notes. John Norstad's homepage. It was amazing. Uh, you would, it was an init. You ran it. It didn't sl- seemingly didn't slow your Mac down at all. It had no adverse effects and it, was updated on a regular basis with all the new uh viruses that were spread around and it would identify them and block them but yeah that was like an insidious one i remember we drexel was absolutely hit by it, it was um it it was it was so insidious it was a virus that would spread just by inserting a floppy
0: disk into an already infected great, machine great piece of engineering for the day yeah. um but yeah yeah but so here's my thing so apple didn't necessarily, they're not, a they, Apple was never necessarily ahead on any innovation, like address space layout randomization, ALSR, which is a great technique used so that you can't predictably as a malware developer know where part of a system is going to be located in memory necessarily. And the more ASLR you do across everything, the harder it is to target a memory location and have something happen. And so that you know that uh, Windows. I want to say Microsoft introduced that years before, and they needed to before right. OS 10. It was much more necessary. But so Apple wasn't necessarily an innovator in that. What they were an innovator in was accidental things that worked right. So um, Apple going to free updates for its operating system. You know, first ch- super cheap, and then completely free, and all the free incremental ones. And the way in which you could do an incremental update in OS 10 without typically destroying your system. I know there were some bad releases and I had problems over the years, but they created an environment in which people were expected to run updates and typically stay up to date. You might've been you know, using 10.6.8, not 10.7 for a while, but then you'd switch over. And when you looked at over the years, as you looked at um, the adoption curve, it's ridiculous compared to any other operating system. These people move up so fast and software developers, of course, have the issue of compatibility and all that. That's one thing. So there are uh, the the long tail of older versions by number of people uh, uh, running, uh, or number of computers, rather, of older versions of OS X is very small compared to most other things. You look at Android 2, Android, and there's this incredible distribution because Android devices... When they were sold originally, the first generations, as opposed to iOS, uh, it was very difficult or impossible to get beyond the version, even the subversion, like 2.2, that you had installed. That gives you a great target because you know there's going to be 100 million devices out there running Android 2.2 for as long as the devices work. So you have that target to attack forever. Android, as opposed to OS 10 or iOS, uh, didn't have a good pathway directly to users. I mean, Windows has this, of course, as a direct pathway, and eventually it helped uh, to provide security updates. So Android users are sort of abandoned, and Google's been working on this for years to create an effective way to have a rapid turnaround for certain kinds of security issues. Switching to apps is one way. Uh, one of my colleagues over at GreenBot in the IDG family there, um, Flo Ion, was telling me the other day that like Google having a messaging app, uh, you know, Hangouts and mess- I really call it Messenger, um, they can update the app. and If there's a security problem in the app, the app can take care of it. But they can't update the entire system because someone's running an outdated or unpatchable phone. So Apple, I think the upgrade cycle can always reduces the target of potential infections, whether it's with iOS, which is a monolithic, you know, Ecosystem as opposed to Android, or as with OS 10, where they push stuff out, and I think in a it seems like a pretty fast, pretty fast way, and get people up to the next version. So there's never a lot of people that you can easily target. And with Windows, you have people running uh, hundreds of millions of people running pre Windows 10 versions. You have hundreds of millions of Android users, maybe several hundred million running pre Marshmallow 6.0 versions, right? right? So those targets are so lovely that as a <laughs> If you're a malware developer and you're a criminal and you're trying to hit the biggest target, why would you do it for iOS or OS ten if it's going to be hard or there aren't enough people? it's it's again an if, economic if
1: you're doing that shotgun approach of I want exactly. to do the least I want to do the exactly. least amount of work and get my scummy little piece of malware on as many devices as possible. I'm going to it,
0: send out a billion phishing messages, and I know that I'm going to catch of that like one hundred million android two point two users. It's our right. owners. It's easy, relatively easy.
1: Whereas, if you want it, if you're in the business of targeting specific individuals at the behest of a government agency, you totally different, yeah, I
0: mean, look you, at the threat you know the hacking team that revealed how many right. different kinds of attacks there were against right. uh, Macs and, and iOS. so that's and, uh, and a different category. It's something to be concerned about, but it's also things like Apple uh, didn't have a native mail program for the longest time, remember, and then they come out with mail, and mail's kind of crappy, but it also by the time Apple came out with its own mail program for OS X, um, there was already diversity. So you couldn't, as a malware author, target a specific popular mail program's problems. Mm-hmm. The mail programs weren't deeply integrated like they were in Windows, so you couldn't cause like JavaScript to run in an attached message without someone clicking on it in Eudora or whatever, right? And then when mail came out, Apple already knew this was a problem, so they engineered something that was less embedded and more separate. So you could still have stuff that would go wrong, but it was a more limited set of activities that happened with Outlook and integration. I mean, Microsoft basically spent the last 20 years pulling out the hooks it built deeply into right. its systems that allowed things to happen when they should have been sandboxed. We're so old that I specifically
1: you say that and it sounds <laughs> it sounds so old that
0: That's what you Max, remember when they did
1: Mac <laughs> shipped without an email app. And they and I had to double oh check. I knew that Apple didn't make one, but I was like, wait, did they maybe ship? like Netscape's weirdo email or something? I was like, no, they didn't ship any of them. They didn't even ship the one. Uh,
0: I was a Eudora user. What what came after that? I mean, it was Outlook. I think I used Outlook for a while in the Office suite. uh, I don't know if that was part of, was that part of the deal? Did did Jobs and uh, and Gates agree as part of the Microsoft investment that um, Apple wasn't going to release its own mail software? No, no. Okay. Because I mean, no. that's but Outlook exists. So people had Office or they'd install Eudora and there were a bunch of other mail programs. There's still a there's still a remarkable number of email programs available and new ones being developed all the time. I don't wanna I, I don't wanna
1: I don't wanna resort to Google here. I want either me or you to remember it. What was the one <laughs> uh, Jed Spencer's team created it? And they went on to Microsoft and created the the good version of Outlook.
0: God, it wasn't Note. What was it called? Uh no, <sighs> And Guy, I don't think I ever used that. Guy
1: Kawasaki anymore. was a big. Uh, uh, MailMate. No, no. Um, it was beloved was, by some people. I don't, I was don't it a Claris
0: product at one point? Even Claris had an email product, didn't it? Uh, I don't. I, you know, I'll tell you. I use Mailsmith today. I, I actually wrote a. You a still pe- do? I wrote a pro. I wrote an article for MacWorld recently called "Old Software That We All Still Use," and I got so many lovely comments from people chipping in with these. I used Quick in two thousand seven. I use Mailsmith, which is updated for compatibility. I use um, CSS Edit from Mac Rabbit, which doesn't develop it anymore for doing CSS tweaking on live sites. I have this whole set of old software that's that's still either getting tiny compatibility updates or manages to work under the current environment, and I'll cry when it stops. And people chimed in with all this software that they use that's sometimes like 10 plus years old that they've just been, you know, a levelator. Uh, levelator, they upgraded it very nice to the people involved and to, uh, to be compatible with El Capitan. Um, but Levelator, I don't think, was really changed for several years. And it's a vital piece of podcast you know audio normalization and equalization software. All
1: right. we Hold the thought. I, have, I did cheat. I Googled and I went to Judd Spencer's <laughs> LinkedIn page. It was Fog City Software. Fog, was, yes. And the product was called Emailer.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
1: it was purchased by Apple in March 1996 and became Claris Emailer. So Apple owned it because Apple owns, or I guess Claris doesn't exist anymore, and I guess it's FileMaker. Ain't? It was like but
0: spun out and Summit was spun in, and then FileMaker Apple was spun owned in.
1: an email client but didn't pre-install it on Mac. Oh my I don't god! Think. I know because I know. because and the whole point was that until the you know again I've I've long said that to me there's really only. Two eras at Apple. There was the original era up, and then starting with the next reunification. That's like modern Apple. Modern Apple started with the next reunification mm-hmm. and Jobs coming back. And that's there's so many things that were different. But in the in the original Apple, it was it was like explicit. It wasn't even implicit. Like I think Apple w- was explicit about it at times that they didn't want to compete with third party. Right developers and so the (laughs) mac you know it it would have it had like uh what was it called back then simple text teach text
0: which was the i can't remember now i think i remember simple text but i think that was later i think you're right teach
1: teach text was like the built-in readme reader um, but it's super minimal. I mean, way less, way more minimal feature, minimally featured
0: even than TextEdit today. I, because I wrote a they, story about TextEdit because TextEdit actually has its roots, right? In Next. Yes. I mean, that oh, is deeply. basically... Yeah. And TextEdit is a great piece of software no one uses. And I wrote a Macworld piece about how great there's some features in it that are invaluable that you can basically cannot easily get in any other no, piece of that, software.
1: People do use it. I, there are, It's sort of like a secret cult of people who love, and, and rightly so, Oh, uh, wow uh text edit, including people at Apple. I remember I had a meeting at Apple over a decade ago when I was at Joyant. It had nothing to do with Daring Fireball. It was, you know, Apple wanted to meet with us and talk about Joyant's technology and blah oh, blah yeah? blah. And uh, I noticed that the uh it was the first time actually I met Michael Lopp in person. Oh yeah. yeah. Repose. He was there, he was an Apple software manager at the time. Um and so we didn't know each other. We weren't friends yet um but we were you know online had a little bit of back and forth simply as you know he knew Daring Fireball I knew Ransom Repose, he comes into the meeting and of course he's a very you know he's such a minimalist he opens up his his I don't know if it was it might even been a PowerBook at the time but whatever you know MacBook PowerBook of course there's nothing on screen it's just a beautiful desktop <laughs> picture. <laughs> a, he launches TextEdit, and he's got one window on screen, and it's TextEdit. And that's the app he used to take notes for the meeting. And I was like, mm-hmm. kind of blown away, but also not surprised at all. And he was like, oh, of course. I, he, and he said, you know why I use this app? I use this app because it is super simple, and it has never once crashed on me. <laughs> I've never lost a single letter of anything I've ever typed in TextEdit. Th- but anyway, just, you know Apple. Know J-
0: I think this is still the case in Japan. I don't know. But in Japan, it used to be the less on your business card, the more important you were. And then, at least in the 80s, I remember seeing a cartoon about this and reading about this. And you know, you, you when you hand someone a business card in Japan, you hold it with two hands and you hand it to them. It's just, you know, it's got a little bit of a ceremony about it. It used to. I have no idea what people do today. And there was a comic strip at the time by an alt cartoonist it was about these two people competing for a job in Japan and striving to be you know, whatever. And one of them has a dream. He says, I dreamt that I meant God. And he handed me his business card and it was completely blank. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking about when you're talking about Michael Lobb right. Street. Uh, so Apple had an email product, and they didn't
1: even pre install it. I don't think maybe they did at some point um, yeah.
0: yeah, so nothing bundled you know they yeah. they kept their hands off and Microsoft integration, bundling, tying monopoly ish tendencies always keeping this market locked in for themselves, whether it's business software productivity issues, email, browser that was their security downfall, and I think they yeah. spent a lot of time backing away from that and okay oh so i just did this story i don't know if this is a sidebar we're still talking viruses i just did a, a piece that should be out by the time this airs for mit technology review about some new research it's not it's been public for months a couple research teams at different universities came up with strategies for fighting ransomware on windows and it was very interesting and i talked to a bunch of you know I talked to mcafee and and other folks and um and the researchers and the thing that's hilarious they say well how do you stop ransomware what's you know what do you do and they're like well you keep your software up to date you install you, you know you, you uh, run the latest patches you don't run java you don't run flash i'm like wait what about virus software they're like that's sort of the last stage like ransomware and most malware now just targets this incredibly low-hanging fruit of which there still remains so much like so one of the people i spoke to said something like 50 of machines you can just get into because they're just not protected in any way forget Uh, antivirus software. Um, What the ransomware, what's interesting is the developers of these, uh, these uh, academics rather, the two different groups took different approaches but the fact is ransomware it works on user space files. So it's actually insidious. You don't have to gain deep permissions. Once right. the payload is dropped and it runs, you know, a lot of ransomware is like scripts, like PHP or JavaScript. Right. And you double click a, a Trojan horse that's delivered via email and it just starts encrypting files because it doesn't need extra permission. Right. It can, it's, they're your files. So they're only doing documents, but there's a lot of telltales, there's entropy and all kinds of other stuff that can monitor. So the, the approaches are really cool. But I was like, oh, that's one reason ransomware has a money thing at the end, which It's very straightforward, and there's like 6 million unique variants of ransomware out there now because the modifications of a bunch of like base families of ransomware, so many different people are doing it because the money is so easy, but fundamentally, it has that great advantage. It's not trying to get into your kernel and do something. It's not trying to hijack your networking. It's just trying to take your Word documents and make them unreadable.
1: Right, it's not really fighting the system, it's actually going with the flow of the system. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. you're something the user double click, you could you have access to all of the yeah, user's yeah. files. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, it's in your, doc, you know, my documents, boom, you're done. Well, and it's
1: exactly the sort of thing, it's exactly the sort of reason that Apple is, you know, sandboxed iOS from the start <laughs> and is so for all the 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 <clears> technical <throat> problems it causes for honest apps why they're so uh, bent towards sandboxing on Mac as well yeah yeah
0: and i i hear that there's there's a technique i learned that i didn't know about there's a micro virtualization is coming it's a step beyond sandboxing every app runs essentially in its own tiny virtual machine which sounds crazy but bromium a b-r-o-m-i-e-m is one of the companies in the space uh, i think uh was it uh, F Secure may have a product? Um, it's the new thing because a lot of business users are basically only running a handful of apps, so running them in the in the virtual environments are transparent to you as a user. Mm. But it essentially, it's like super sandboxing. Right, it's wild. Uh,
1: did you see the story? I linked to it. I guess I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, I linked to it earlier this week or maybe last week, where there was <laughs> there's a variant of ransomware that doesn't actually <laughs> After you pay them, it doesn't give you your oh, files. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So the way for the anybody who yeah. doesn't know the machine way ransomware is. works: so your <laughs> machine gets hit by <laughs> ransomware. the 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 ransomware malware starts running, and it starts encrypting your files. And then all of a sudden, you're going. You notice it when you go to open one of your documents, and it gives you a dialog, and it says you've been, you know, you've been hit by ransomware all of your files are encrypted and they really are encrypted and so like if you like go try to open it in, you know a text editor or something it's just going to be you know garbled binary stuff because it's encrypted
0: right and the and key th- is sent via command and control system that's the one it yeah. does need a little network access so the yep. key is not stored on the device so you can't just extract the key somehow
1: yeah there's, so there's some clever you know use of encryption there and then if you Give them money by following steps X, Y, and Z. Who knows? You know, maybe they want Bitcoin. You have to go buy Bitcoin and then give them the Bitcoin, or you know, or they just want your credit card number or whatever. Somehow you've got to get the money and then you give them money and then they really do decrypt. You know, they give you the key and you're, 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 you get your files back. And there have been cases, high-profile cases. There was, I remember, there was a, a hospital, I think in Los Angeles hospital that got hit yes. by ransomware and they spent
0: it spent $17,000, I think, to yeah.
1: get it They had to, but you know, they, you know, and, and there's sort of a, a, you know, it's, it's like an old, almost like a political thing that, you know, like the United States government doesn't negotiate with terrorists. And if that's your policy, if you just state that as your policy up front, we don't negotiate with, with terrorists. It hopefully acts as a deterrent to terrorists who would, you know, uh, take people, take U.S you know, take people hostage because of the you know, now it's not really true that we don't negotiate with them, but it's the policy and you can see the logic of that. And you can see the logic of well, you should never pay these people for this. But at a certain point it might have been worth it for if if it was critical enough information, it might be worth it for you to pay whatever the price. That the price they're asking, however distasteful it is to actually give in and give these literal criminals money, it might be more valuable to you, you know, than the you know the the actual data that's been encrypted is more valuable Um, now the funny thing is that (laughs) there's a group there's a group that (laughs) you give them the money and i'm laughing but it's terrible because it's it's even worse obviously but the thing that makes me it makes me laugh about it is that all of the (laughs) and all of the honest (laughs) ransomware (laughs) and i it's so funny to say that the honest crooks I've got to be furious about this because if word spreads that even if you pay, you don't get your files back, it's going to make people less likely to pay.
0: I have so many things to say about this. Can I say a few things? Yes. I so many. I, just been, I spent several days working on this recently. So, okay, so you know how ship ransoming works, like piracy, Somali pirates, right? Money, Planet Money did a great piece about this and it talked to one of the people who does negotiation with pirates to pay their ransom, right? If you start killing the hostages, piracy stops working. So it's actually typically not dangerous to be taken uh, captive by pirates, Somalian or whomever, because it is entirely in the interest of the economic system to to negotiate a reasonable fee, make sure all the hostages are unharmed. They will even sometimes release people for medical or compassionate reasons. Like it's handled like a business. Then you have the situation where, I can't remember how long ago this was now, a couple of years, where some pirates started killing people. And then it was like, okay, and all the navies of the world went, Screw this. And they start steaming Navy ships in and sort of clean up the problem, which has been a commercial problem and is now, you know, a human rights one. Right. And I'm thinking the idiots who think it's funny to delete the files or they're too incompetent, whatever it is, they have so many. I mean, there are so many angry organized criminals in the world. They're, these guys could get killed, honestly, right. if they're tracked down. That's for sure. So that's not funny. But it's also, like, it actually does exactly that. The, the, it's almost like a disruptive technique that would that destroys the value of ransomware. So in researching this story, I came across just a few days ago, F-Secure released this hilarious white paper. They tested the customer service of major ransomware packages. <laughs> 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 they're like, it has a customer service burden. I talked to this guy named Sean Sullivan at uh, F-Secure Labs about some background stuff about ransomware. And he said the reason it's gotten so popular is it's Tor, you know, the routing network that lets you do anonymized browsing. That's how the ransomware people post websites, basically. And uh, Bitcoin, it's all Bitcoin. There's no credit card anymore. Right. That's the big change. And ransomware dates back literally decades, but this is the, the Bitcoin just makes it, it facilitates it so much. The average ransomware um, Demand now has gone up from a few hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin to like six hundred something dollars. But F Secure found you could negotiate with some of them; they'll you'll, they'll run the fee down. They they created like a, a naive user who then she they hired somebody who was not technical to do the communication, so they wouldn't give anything away about you know what they about more sophisticated details, and they tested all these. You can extend the deadlines. The customer service people. The ransomware companies are very sensitive. In one case, they're like, "This was as good as like real ca- customer service." It's like what you'd get from a software company. They talk you through it. They'll often teach you how to buy Bitcoin, right. so that you can pay. They right. treat it like a real customer service burden, like it's a business, and we're here to help you get your files back. Yeah. So, and
1: yes. well, if you think about um, it, when do you typically get the best customer service? Typically, you get better customer service before you've given them your money. Yeah, yeah. right. You get, you get. You
0: know, it's it's
1: easier and you wait less time to talk to a salesperson before you've bought something than when you come back with a problem.
0: Yeah, it's just the whole thing is hilarious. I mean, it's hilarious and awful. So Mac users, you know, there's been a couple ransomware attempts, software attempts against Mac users. And again, because of the userware or user space file issue, it's possible we will see, um, you know, phishing-style ransomware or things that will be minimally capable because, uh OS 10 will execute certain kinds of things. The question is your network access and some privilege it may need would be harder. there might need to be an exploit pathway for a little bit of it, but it is so much less of a burden um, to get to have some effect. Uh, so so we'll see so hopefully it won't affect most of us, but it is, um, and again, it's, you know, everything they're saying, it's like, update your software, use patches, make backups, having good backups, um, you know, I use Backblaze and Crash Plan and local clones, and I have a deep archive. So if I, if all my files were encrypted today, I have 100% of those, on uh, most of them on Dropbox also, and in two other, in like at least one other place, I should say, where I have a deep archive and I could go back to a pre-encrypted release.
1: Uh, Let me take a break here. Thank our next sponsor. This is a longtime friend of the show, longtime sponsor, Fracture. Fracture is a photo decor company that is out to rescue your favorite images from the digital ether. They print your photos directly onto glass and add a laser-cut rigid backing so they are ready to display right out of the box. It's not like a piece of paper glued to a piece of glass. They print the photo right on the glass. They've been a sponsor for years. I still haven't seen anybody else that does this. Maybe it's somebody else. I think that Fracture's got all this proprietary stuff down there. Um, it is an amazing display. I've always said it is very much like the, the way that the retina displays. Once Apple started fusing the screens to the glass, where it looks like the pixels are on the glass instead of behind a layer of glass, that's what Fracture photos look like, except they're completely analog. Uh, it is a great, thing to do with your digital photos i have thousands i shoot thousands of photos every year and the ones that i like best i get get them printed on these fractors, hang them up around the house uh that's what people used to do because your photos were printed you'd go you'd shoot photos you'd get them back from the the photo lab you'd take the ones you like out you know the the real keepers you'd instead of just putting them back in the envelope you'd put them in a frame hang them up uh we don't do that anymore because there's like this extra step where you got to get them from your digital archive to being on. This is the way to do it. If you're going to print your photos, take the keepers and send them to Fracture. They're so good. They have so many sizes, amazing sizes. They have a 60-day happiness guarantee so that you're sure to love your order. Each Fracture is handmade in Gainesville, Florida from U.S. sourced materials in their carbon neutral factory. All happens in the U.S., uh, so, for more information and ten percent off your first order, visit fractureme.com slash podcast there 's even a special note in here that says note the URL really ends in podcast, not the name <laughs> not the name of your podcast because i 'll tell you if they did put that note in here I, I would have said uh dot com slash the talk show but that 's not it remember this it 's fracctorme dot slash Podcast, and then what they want you to do when you place your order, they're going to say, "Where'd you hear about this?" Just mention that you heard it from the talk show, and they'll know that you came from here. It's uh, it's it's literally it is a one question survey. <laughs> Where did you hear about Fracture? <laughs> so it is the easiest survey you will ever take. Just remember to tell them that helps support the show, and it's FractureMe.com slash podcast. Um, can
0: I? Can I?
1: You can do whatever you want.
0: I, well, a uh, brief, brief, <laughs> another, this is like a, this isn't a sidebar. You were writing recently about um, Amazon and its inventory of the Birkenstock story. That's on my list of topics. Oh, good. Well, I have something to say about that, but we can go take your direction. I don't, I, a, if I, if I think, it. I think we were
1: done with security, so we okay. can totally go on to Amazon fraud. I've linked just to a couple of recent stories about, oh my uh, God, it's so terrible. Uh, so, there's a couple of aspects to it. One is the the main one that I've been reading because it seems like it's a little bit new is is big brands uh, being ripped off by mostly Chinese counterfeiters and then they sell these things through Amazon. Uh, well, the first one I heard this is maybe two years ago is that Mophie products. Mophie, the uh, oh, batter, battery yeah. maker, they make yeah. a whole bunch of battery external battery packs and battery cases for for phones. Um, a uh, really interesting company. I have a couple of their things, and uh, I really, I I have to say, I like them a lot. Uh, I have a battery. I like the instead of a case, I like to just have the battery pack, and they make one that has built in lightning and USB cables. So you don't need to take cables, you don't need to have an extra cable. I really like that product a lot. It's my favorite external battery thing ever. But I heard years ago, just like at least two years ago, don't buy Mofi stuff on Amazon because. It, there's so much Chinese knockoff crap that looks like a Mofi product, but it's really substandard electronics. The batteries are no good. They're, they're just crummy products. Um, if you Google like Mofi Amazon, you'll, you'll find lots of hits about it. So now, just recently this week, Birkenstock, the oh, uh, man. sandals. What else do they make? Just sandals and flip flops, yeah, I guess? Yeah, a bunch
0: of stuff. I, I was called, by the way, I was called socks and sandals in college because of my Birkenstock <laughs> habits, just so you know. I went to school in the East, grew up in the West. That's how it goes. <laughs> Uh,
1: is pulling out of Amazon on January. I guess they ha- they can't do it immediately because they might have contracts or inventory or something. But, but they're so overrun by counterfeiters on Amazon that they're pulling
0: out. Uh, oh, yeah. And you, and you love them. They're like, Amazon basically told them, if you want to be sell every single thing you sell, then we will fight counterfeiting. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. And if you want to just sell the way you're doing, then screw you. I mean, yeah. they didn't say it that way, but that's the effect. That's, you know, that's what Birkenstock claims, at least. I think I could be wrong on this. Uh, I've, I wrote,
1: I, that I, it's sort of like when you search for stuff on Amazon, it tells you who it's, who you're buying it from. And, you know, with a lot of the smaller things, like when you just go there and buy, uh, copy paper, printer paper, you know, it's like, you know, it's just, you're not really buying it from Amazon. You're buying it from some vendor that sells through Amazon, but I've, was under the impression that even if you wanted to buy like a Mophie battery pack, if you buy it directly from Amazon and you're not buying it from, you know, Joe's battery right. shop, that you're, you know, you could be, you know, you could feel safe that you're getting the actual Mophie product. But you kind of have to be. Oh my uh, god! You have to be like a a close reader. How many people who shop at Amazon actually look at who it's? who, who's this fulfillment is. I don't think most people, most reasonable, you know, most regular people even know that that's how Amazon works. You know, I think they, they just think you're buying it from Amazon and they don't even look, they just look at prices and they might be curious about the fact that the same product is available at three different prices from Amazon because it's from three different, um, you know, whatever you want to call them, fulfillment partners. Um,
0: Yeah, or I don't know if it's through, maybe through Marketplace or maybe through their, they have Fulfillment by Amazon. Also, you can send your stuff to Amazon and they will sell it to their own customers. Right. So, you know, I think you mentioned this in one of the pieces uh, that you linked to, the co-mingling. So there's like two kinds of, there's actually four kinds of fraud. There are two kinds of major fraud. One is, oh God, there's so many kinds of fraud. Okay, so co-mingling is... Company X ships a product to Amazon and they say, this is exactly the same. Here's the SKU number. This is product Y that you already sell like a Cuisinart electric kettle, which I'll right. explain why I'm bringing that up. Right. Amazon does co-mingling where they take this inventory. I don't even know how many they inspect it or whatever. And they put it on their shelves as, and they don't care, uh, they treat it as a fungible thing. This thing that came from company X that claims its product Y, we're putting on the shelves in our warehouse next to this thing that came from the manufacturer that claims its product Y, right? I have heard stories from multiple places, and you can read them publicly too uh, in a lot of these articles about companies like Birkenstock, and Birkenstock has a different problem, which I get to, but you buy a product, you go to Amazon, you order product Y, and it comes and you're like, this is not product Y. You complain to Amazon and they're like, oh, send it back, we'll ship you a new one. Or you complain to the company. I bought product Y from Amazon. They like we didn't make that. Does it have this and this? No, that's a counterfeit that was put into Amazon's stream, and we cannot prevent them from selling them. Basically, right. that's the commingling problem. Birkenstock has the undercutting problem, where people are listing things basically as the same kind of thing. They're undercutting Birkenstock's prices, and they may or may not be shipping a Birkenstock. They're probably shipping something as it could be they're buying them from some other source, or it could be they are manufacturing something that is completely counterfeit and selling it and um, when they're both huge problems, because in the one case you have this thing where people buy. I mean, actually Birkenstock has the same problem, whether it's a commingled problem or counterfeit and cheaper. Someone buys it, says Birkenstock screwed me. They write the company and said, we didn't make that. Where'd you buy it from? Amazon? That's not ours. You bought the $80 one, not the $100 one. We don't sell it for $80. You bought the right. sucky one. All right. So, so you- this just happened to me last night. Really? Yeah. So I. What was the product? So uh, electric kettle, love electric kettle. I've had two uh, brown model ones or brawn, I guess we say in America. Uh, my wife got me one for a birthday like 15 years ago. It worked fine for several years and then it just died. So we bought the identical thing. It's like a $20 one. It's worked great. It just dies of the day. Same thing. Some kind of, you know, it's got all these contacts breaks. So I'm like, okay, I will find out what Wirecutter recommends. My old friends at Wirecutter and Sweet Home was a contractor there for a bit. I love the people there. I love the process. I'm like, all right, well, what one do they recommend? I'm like, oh God, it's $80. Am I going to spend $80 on a? electric? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'm not made of money. Uh, Jason Snell has a Breville T-robot, which is $250, which I've been eyeing for a year now. I'm not, I can't get it. Can't get it. A robot it that makes tea? It has a basket that lowers robotically and okay. raises. So it, bre- it's, it steeps it for the right amount of time. And I just wanted warm. to
1: clarify that it was tea, the beverage, and not like a, a some <laughs> kind of, I, I, you know, like a T-shirt. <laughs> oh, like the letter, oh. something I wasn't familiar with.
0: It's a tea brewing robot pot. It's awesome. It's And people love the Breville. But I'm not ready to spend. I'd love to be able to. If I ever got some great contract or something, I might say, this is my treat to myself, uh, I will get a robot that makes tea for me. Um, you still have to put stuff in the basket, but it moves, it moves it up and down. doesn't oversteep. So anyway, 80 bucks. I'm like, that seems, I don't know. So I start doing research and I go to Amazon because it's usually my first stop. And there are like 700 electric kettles now. And many of them have one review, which makes no sense, right? Like, why is what's something with one review and a brand name I've never heard of in my 48 years on this planet? And then a bunch of others. I find one. I'm like, this is like 300 reviews. I've never heard of this thing. And 97% of them are five stars. Hmm. You know how the app store works. Same thing on Amazon. So I'm reading the reviews and it's like, Marty says, this is a great kettle. This kettle does everything I want it to. It's great. Mm-hmm. Jill says, this kettle is great. It does everything I wanted to. This kettle is great. Right. And it goes on and on. And there's a few real five-star reviews and then a distribution of other ones. So I'm like, I'm not going to buy that because that's some piece of crap manufactured God knows where. That they're, you know, for a finite amount of time, they're going to push through Amazon and make some hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I'm like, where are the $20 or $30 good kettles? Like brown, I can't find browns anymore. Everyone's gone upscale. Kettles now cost $50, $60, $80 just to do basic stuff. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to bite the bullet. I, I use the kettle two, three times a day. My wife uses it two times a day. This is a high use thing. I, all right, I'm going I'm to spend $80. I'm, I, I hate it, but I'm going to spend $80. I go to Amazon site and I'm like, all right, well, it's 80 bucks. Okay. I'm looking through reviews, I'm like this looks pretty good. And then I look at the seller. It's a Cuisinart, but it doesn't say sold by Cuisinart. It says sold by, uh, everything lucky. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Everything lucky to selling the Cuisinart. And I'm thinking this, this isn't right. So I search an Amazon site for the model number. It's like CPK 1212 or something. And I'm like, all right, so where... This is, and then I find another listing for a hundred dollars with, so, okay. So the, the $80 unit everyday lucky, which I find out later, so he points that to me, it says "Everday lucky. It's not even spelled right. Whatever the make, you know, they're <laughs> mostly se- an everyday lucky is mostly selling iPhone cases and this Cuisinart alleged Cuisinart. So the, the $80 everyday lucky listing has 2,500 clearly legitimate reviews. They have managed somehow to hijack the main listing. There's a hundred dollar version and if you look at all the other people selling this like Target Walmart Best Buy they're all selling this model for a hundred dollars so I'm like that's the list price clearly and the hundred dollar one on Amazon says buy sold by you know buy and it's being fulfilled by a third party but it's clearly the legitimate product but it has like seven reviews so I asked my friends at sweet home like what's going on here and they're like oh what happened is I got a response this morning from Tony over there who's great you know they have all these deals people and everything He says what happened is um, the uh, Amazon ran out of a stock that it sells directly, and so they pulled a listing for someone selling it new, not you know used or new, refurbished or whatever, and they dropped that in so they don't drop the listing off and so in this case, everyday lucky was the backup provider in their listing of third party sellers for this particular model it's it's i I'm looking at
1: it as we speak it's e- everthing lucky
0: oh ever uh, everything lucky sorry everything uh, lucky I know isn't that and so that that is my story so it's I'm still like, there. Oh, yeah. So well, no. So I wake up this morning and Tony has responded at Sweet Home via Twitter. He's great guy. And he's like, "Oh, here's what's going on. Check, it's back." And I go, "I'm like, oh, there's the Amazon listing. It's sixty seven dollars now. Now I feel justified. I've waited, so, right?" Do you think that this is the real product though? Well, well. So here's so. Uh, I think it so is. It, it may be, but there's no way to know. Like I'm right. buying it from a third party seller who has right. clearly done some magic. So this morning I placed an order. I paid sixty seven dollars. Everyone can criticize me for my. Profligate spending, and uh, if you like, (laughs) please feel free. Anyway, so I buy it, and I write back to Tony. I'm like, hey, the thing you're right, swapped back, and he's like, I just went back, and it's there. Apparently, I bought the one model Amazon had in a warehouse that it fulfilled itself, and it's back to Everything Lucky. Yeah. So anyway, that's the problem they have. So I don't know. So Everything Lucky could be selling me a legitimate object and still $20 less than the retail price at Target, Walmart, et cetera. However, um, they're getting the advantage of 2,500 positive reviews and Amazon doesn't vet that that product is actually a new from Cuisinart item.
1: Yeah. So part of the, part of the problem,
0: the, the, the way
1: that, I mean, this is so insidious, but part of this problem now is if, if it starts to, if awareness starts to spread that you can't trust stuff, Third party resellers on Amazon, it hurts all of the honest <laughs> ones that the system was set up for in the first place.
0: Exactly. It's terrible all around. There's also, like, even yet another variant on that, too, is that. Um, so those are like the almost legitimate cases, right? Like this could absolutely be a fell off the truck or, you know, bought, like, you know, one of the things in China is that, and I've heard this, I hope, I don't mean to tell lies about China. So let's say this isn't, I don't know if this is true, but I've read it in another number of accounts. I've talked to people who've had stuff made in China. It's a complaint made by a number of companies about things with China is some factories will gear up products for a given maker. And during the day, they're being supervised or being made for maker, you know, whatever company is, you know, Reebok or whatever, it could be shoes, it could be, uh, Cuisinart kettles at night, they fire up the lines, they make stuff and they sell that themselves. And they're essentially identical. Sometimes there's labeling changes. So they're the identical unit with it, they're not labeled. So they avoid some intellectual property issues. So, the Birkenstock thing when you go to Berkeley to try to buy a Birkenstock thing and their list price is $100 for whatever, and uh, and there's people selling it for $80, you might be getting the legitimate thing, it might be made as a factory nighttime job or who knows what, or they're just doing deeper discounts because however they're acquiring it, they're not honoring the list price. The same thing that uh, Cuisinart kettle bought from Everything Lucky could have been absolutely the same as anything purchased directly from an Amazon warehouse or from a third party you know, uh, authorized Cuisinart thing, but you don't know this. The other problem though, like the other thing is that, uh, what you're saying before is it's the, um, the counterfeit stuff. That's just knockoffs that are crap and they appear to be listed the same. So it's, I see this all the time for, you know, all these different products I'm looking for, for reviews and things. You find stuff that is clearly the pictures are something off. You buy it. Something's not right. And. You're not, you know. Sometimes it's listed under a slightly different name. Sometimes it's listed as exactly the same thing, and it's trying to take advantage of the reputation. But all these problems persist because Amazon wants to sell more. It doesn't want to do tighter inventory control because it costs a lot of money. It shaves the margins off.
1: So I just sent you a link. This is the 1.8 quart cordless electric tea cuddle. I think this is the product you're talking about. I ca- yes, that's right. I kind of hate the interface. To
0: tell you, I that know it's, uh, the be- it's the best, cheapest thing. Like if you want something better. You have to spend more. And I'm like, oh, I know, it looks horrible. And the Cuisinart is yeah, CP, CPK17, sold by right. Everything Lucky. Now, if you look, I think it's the same product. There's there's a thing there that
1: says size 7 cup. and yes. the one The two sizes that are offered is 7 cup, which is 100 $100. And then the other one, instead of measuring in cups, it just gives you the dimensions of the box: nine point seven inches oh by God. six inches by eight. And so, oh, it,
0: they may have managed to sneak. Oh, interesting!
1: By they've made it look like there's two options of the same product, but they're <laughs> one is measuring by the cup capacity of how much water you can put in, and the other one is measured in inches.
0: Yeah, and the 8 quart one is the seven cup one is sold by Card Machine Outlet Inc. Oh, the you know well, mine says.
1: Oh, it says mine says it's by Cuisinart. Yeah. You scroll but,
0: down under in stock, it says Ships. Oh, sold I see. By, I know, isn't it? But so. No, mine customer, is sold by Kitchen Capers. Oh, my God. What happens when I reload? That's hilarious. Mine is from Kitchen Capers. But Every time I, I reload, I'm getting a different answer, I think. Wow. Oh. And so
1: this one is a hundred dollars and prime is available, but that $80 one it, to me is suspicious. The $80 one. And I guess Amazon defaults to it cause it's cheapest. Yeah, but that's exactly it. The fact that that's the one by everything lucky, the fact that it's cheaper makes me think that it might be fake. I would actually, if I were going to yeah. buy this right now, I would buy, I would actually spend the extra $20 to get the one that says it's by Cuisinart.
0: Yeah. Except here's the funny thing. So when I logged in this morning, Amazon apparently had gotten one on their shelves that they fulfilled directly. So it's listed right. as sold by Amazon Right. 67 bucks so i got the deal yeah. i guess i got the one that was 67 dollars yeah i'm very happy about that i'm gonna be able to boil my tea at all kinds of temperatures it's gonna be now great. there's another
1: there's another type of fraud going on on amazon and this is just oh comical
0: no come on <laughs> i right. i
1: linked i linked to the to somebody on twitter yesterday who bought uh wanted to get a floor mat and they got they got like a almost like a mouse pad type thing <laughs> <laughs> With printed on the mouse pad, like it is, it is floor mat <laughs> size, but printed on oh the, the piece of foam is a screen print of the sort of texture of the. Full.
0: <laughs> I was crying. I was so, explaining that to my wife this morning because I was saying, "Okay, I bought a tea kettle. Here's my story," and she's laughing. And I told her about the other one, the the cup, the changing temperature pattern cup one.
1: Right. So is, the, the other yeah. one, uh, I guess I'll put a link to my to my. Daring Fireball link piece in the show notes, and then you guys so can look up there. But somebody bought there was a, a listing on Amazon, and it showed a picture two pictures of the same mug. One was like when it's empty and it just looks uh, black, and if you fill it with a hot beverage, it, it the color will uh the, the it's printed with some kind of temperature sensitive ink,
0: and yeah, it
1: changes and gives you like a snowy Christmas scene. And so somebody bought this on Amazon, and what they got was a mug where somebody had printed that photo of two mugs <laughs> onto the mug. Oh, so it was a mug, thing. a mug with a with a photo of two mugs <laughs> on it.
0: Was, it. it was kind of, I actually think it would be a great now that now that has become a meme. That would be a great gift. I would love to buy a mug with a picture of two mugs on it. I think that right. sounds great. Uh, and I guess that the idea with that type of scam
1: is that it is so i mean i'm guessing that this was not a very expensive mug that if it's only like four bucks or six bucks that people wouldn't even bother to send it back because it's like what's you know what's the point you know what i mean like you feel like you're ripped off but at a certain point oh yeah it's more of a hassle (laughs) to send it back than it is that the money's worth
0: can i tell you my perfect walmart experience which is uh walmart pay just came out uh, nationwide, they rolled it out. And, I'm, and this is, so I've been laughing about currency, which was the, you know, the big retailer system that was supposed to use 2D codes and checking accounts yep. and crap. Been laughing about that for years. Susie Oaks and I on the Macworld podcast, every time a currency story comes out, we make sure to highlight it so we can laugh at it. Because it sort of, it, if it had come out before Apple Pay and then Android Pay, maybe it would have gotten a little bit of traction. I don't know. But it didn't, right? It was, right. like, ridiculous. And it's finally been a basically shut down. They're focusing on the MCX consortium that's a bunch of these big retailers is now focusing on backend stuff, which is great. So Walmart had been working on its own system. It's a member of the MCX consortium. But it had been working on its own variant. And I saw an announcement about it. I'm like, you know, this doesn't look as awful. You don't. They don't accept checking account linkages, so there's less risk of your stuff being hijacked right um where your checking account can be drained and it's always a pain to get anything fixed i was just talking to someone the other day they had hundred and sixty thousand dollars taken out of their checking account after they sold a house it took them six months to get it back even though they had not authorized anything they weren't even scammed the bank was scammed so checking accounts are a pain in the ass credit cards debit cards we have protections even um gift cards state That's terrifying trade- yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> positively terrifying. There are no protections on accounts. Let's go all go back to Bitcoin and ca- and gold. Um, so uh, state attorney generals have a lot of control over uh, gift cards. There's this, Those are state regulated. And um, so there's control even there. So Walmart Pay will let you use a Walmart gift card, a debit card, credit card, and uh, uh prepaid card, something like that. And I'm like, well, this is kind of cool. You still have to use a barcode. You're scanning a 2d code. Um, but it all looked sensible. So I pitched to Mac, well, let me go right about this. Is it sure? So I find a Walmart, it's about 20 minutes away. I've been to, they've, uh, they opened it actually a store They shut down, which is rare for them. And I go there and first thing in the morning, the place is totally empty. No one's even trailing me around to make sure I don't steal. There's no greeter. Nobody checked my receipt when I left. The place is empty. We need to buy a cheap, uh, clock with a face for our dining room so that my younger son does not spend an hour and a half eating at the table the same piece of toast so he can get through things in the day so some children dawdle some eat fast anyway so i find a clock it costs 650 i'm like this is great it's battery operated. it looks cool i like the face whatever do the checkout process i actually quite like it i'd already set up walmart pay the app is actually very well designed point of sale system displays a code you just open your app you tap it and you're done and it's electronic i'm like this is great I get home, I unpack it, the clock doesn't work. So, <laughs> so I'm sorry. That's, the, that's the Walmart story. Uh, I have
1: noticed, that it seems like, um, I, I don't know if, if, if this was predicted or not, I actually wanted to talk about Apple Pay. Um, oh, yeah. It seems to me, and, and 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 Apple is an interesting, Apple's usually late to most things, but every once in a while, they're early on things. Like, for example, Wi-Fi. Apple, Apple. Uh, you know, like when Apple introduced the oh, iBook yeah. that had Wi-Fi, they actually had to explain what Wi-Fi was, and that was the that was the event where Phil Schiller uh, did like a stunt, like he like jumped, off oh, yeah. climbed up a ladder and jumped ten feet onto a, a padded mat while holding the iBook to prove that it was you know getting the internet over the air. Like they actually, it was almost like you know, it, it the idea that you're getting internet over the air was such a novelty that they actually felt like they had to prove it. Um, and it seems to me like Apple Pay is another one of those things where Apple Pay came out at the right time like because it's just maybe it's a local thing here in Philly but maybe it's something else but a whole bunch of chains around here have suddenly started getting the chip and pin registers and they yeah. they all seem to work with Apple Pay even though they don't have Apple Pay logos yet. Like so we have a supermarket chain here called oh. Acme. They don't have there's no Apple Pay logo, uh, but it just says uh tap or pay or something i forget what they all say but there's like a little logo that suggests that maybe there's some kind of nfc thing and so i've i tried apple pay and it just works and starbucks uh our locals at least the the one i go to uh now has chip and pin but a lot of these ones too they get the chip and pin um and then they have a piece of tape there and it says <laughs> yes. chip chip doesn't work yet yep um but at Starbucks, Apple Pay worked, and I paid. Oh, uh, I paid with Apple Pay at Starbucks, and I think that's new, right? I think it they is were, totally new. I mean, like you it's may have like, an early rollout. It's like maybe like within the last ten days, at least here, um, and that the none of you know. I it, and it's funny because it like Whole Foods where I go, they've had Apple Pay for a while. They were like a debut partner and like listed on the slide on the stage, um, and it. I've been using it at at. At Whole Foods for you, you know, ever since it came out, so it's not a novelty there. But at Starbucks, yeah. I've gotten like two or three of the the clerks have been like, "Whoa, what did you just do there? That was amazing!" But then I went today, and uh, it didn't work. It it worked in so far as as when I got my iPhone near the terminal, my credit card came up on the screen, and it read my fingerprint and went ching and said done. And then the little hand terminal uh said processing but then the processing uh never went through and it i forget what it said it just like processing was up way too long because apple pay is very fast usually mm-hmm. uh it was processing way too long and then it said like uh payment could not be completed and so i had to you know pay with a actual credit card like a you know, like a 20th century oh person.
0: God. I think my recollection is that NFC is typically like, there's a, it's a protocol. The, the payment is uh, over NFC is a protocol. So yeah. even if it isn't supposed to take Apple pay, it, if NFC is enabled at all, it will try to do it, but the back end part may not work. Cause I think yeah. that was the deal. Was that, um, Oh, I forget CVS or something. One of the MCX partners. Yes.
1: yes yeah. Right. At
0: launch, it was like people were paying with Apple pay and they're like, Oh, it's not supposed to work. It's like, they, they, they literally, so.
1: <laughs> they literally did stay, <laughs> they- nationwide, CVS disconnected their entire, the the ability to pay with any NFC at all just so that it wouldn't use Apple Pay, even though they were actually getting the money from Apple Pay. It wasn't like they were getting ripped off. It was...
0: They didn't want to put, well, they all had a deal. And it was you know, spite. I just, I just got email from a company. I don't want to mention its name yet because I haven't tested it, but oh, you're I, so full was, of secrets. I'm so full. Well, no, it's not that they're secret. I don't want to promote them until I see what they actually do. Uh, they're in beta testing it like public beta. You have to sign up our, our good friend, Adam Lissagor is. Has done a video for them, uh, so that's how credible they are. Okay, they're great, um, and it's a very funny video, of course. Uh, so and, and very informative. So this, uh, do you remember several years ago there were some credit cards uh, that would let you create an individual card number for every transaction? Yes, yes. I love that. I use that. And you could set things like, this can charge no more than $100 a month. This is a one-time use and should only work until such. Like all these things. And the interface was terrible. It was pre-mobile. It was awful. And online payment was terrible anyway. So this is an outfit that is doing the same thing with an app. You sign up. You get a credit card through their partner, which I forget which bank it is, some major bank. And uh, 18% credit, you know, interest apr so it's you know it's the kind of card you better pay off because it's not reasonable otherwise and one percent cash back so it's they got all these parameters on it but the fact is like for online transactions like you're they have a physical card you can use that's got an EMF or MV chip in it. Um, So you could use that. But when you're paying online, uh, you know, any kind of transaction, you run the app, it generates a unique number with whatever parameters you want, like one time or whatever. And you use that one time number. And Mm -hmm. so it gets stolen. You know who stole it. So I'm going to try. They gave me an invitation. I signed up. I'm going to test my credit rating. But um, I had three card numbers stolen this year so far. Oh my God, that's amazing. It's been so long for me and numbers. I had a visa and then an Amex and then another visa, three different car uh, issuers and uh in every case, I got to tell you, the fraud people have got... I mean, they used to be good. I had dealt with this in the past a bit. But every call was with someone who is so crackerjack. I'm like, they're obviously paying people well. They're training yeah. them well. These people were amusing and fun. I mean, it was like fun to talk to while we're going through all the crap you have to go through. And they took care of it. In every case, they caught it. In one case, like a $0.38 transaction to a charity went through, and but everything else didn't. So the pilot fish yeah, transaction went through. Yeah, yeah. That's,
1: so, what they, that's what they do. I forget. It wasn't me. It was my wife wife i think i think it was she amy
0: gas station charge or an online uh, charge
1: uh a, like in a bodega somebody bought like yeah. coke
0: and they see if it's been canceled basically. yeah
1: so they got it they they bought a coke and uh then they went to buy like uh you know i don't know tv yeah TV same, same
0: thing so in each of these three cases they're fraud pattern got it and they're like in two cases nothing in one case 38 cents which was refunded and um poor charity they got 38 cents they didn't know they were going to get and then it's taken back um but so i'm very interested and you know you think so i am so excited for apple pay and safari not because i am so excited about apple pay but i'm like apple pay and safari is going to be the beginning of a transition because android pay in whatever browsers is coming like they're going to be all these mobile pay options will now be available through desktop and um, mobile web transactions. The minute any of my cards is enabled, I'm like never going to buy anything from a site that doesn't do Apple Pay in Safari again. I'm
1: dreading my Amex getting ripped off again. It was a couple <sighs> years ago and somebody, some nitwit tried to buy uh, jet skis in <laughs> Arizona or New Mexico. Either Arizona yeah. or New Mexico. That's but, very funny. But, uh, you know, the guy from Amex called me and and said, you know, you're not trying to buy jet skis in Arizona, are you? And I was like, no, definitely not. And he goes, All right, well somebody is, uh sorry, you know, and like you said, totally on the ball. Just don't worry about it. But your card is now canceled. I'm FedExing yeah. you a replacement. It should be there tomorrow. Really sorry, you know, uh, you know, but you you they know blame and, yourself. And, you know and take a look take a look at your, you know, next uh, you know statement and uh or I guess he read some of my recent transactions that were me and I was like, Yeah, those are all good. Um but I'm dreading my the one I've had now for a couple of years getting ripped off because it's my new when my new card came my last three digits are 007.
0: Oh my God! Yeah, because I love this
1: card. Custom
0: card numbers. Why don't they sell them? I think if you're a very high, like you're a whale of a card user or an <laughs> investment, get, I think you, you can get the number you want.
1: Get some lucky numbers on there. Double. Yeah. The, can you believe it? I got double S.
0: Oh my God! That's so. That's so good.
1: And I always read it when I have to read it over the phone. I always say it that way, like 0000. you know, whatever, the whatever, 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 whatever,
0: and then double S. That's yeah. I think. Pay, I mean. The pain of thing, the fact that we're still using unsecured numbers to do this is sort of hilarious. Like, I, I've wondered, why can't the credit card companies be set up to do two-factor authentication? Like, I'd be delighted if I went to Amazon, I punched in my cart, or not Amazon, because they have their own whatever. But I go to random site X, and before the transaction goes through, it texts me a code, and I have to enter it. Like, I know the back-end systems are ancient and weird and whatever, but you'd think after this many years, they could just tack that on and you'd enable it in your card and if you went to a site they couldn't do it you know they'd have to they'd say you know you have to try this transaction again after clicking a link that's being sent to you email or some kind of bypass. but apparently the frictionless nature of e-commerce has to be emphasized over the amount of fraud fraud at some point becomes so high that they have to then invent new ways to you know prevent against it but um there's some balance there um
1: so what do we think? Let's go back, circle back to, to Amazon. I think Amazon's got to clean this mess up. I think Amazon yeah. needs to, uh, I, I know that they're operating at a massive scale and there's sort of, you know, an app store like problem there where if you've got all of these hundreds of thousands of products from all these partners that, that you know, maybe they can't ever achieve perfection. But at this point, it seems like nobody's even watching watching the, the, the door. You know what I mean? It's,
0: yeah. Well, they could say there's like they could say there's a thousand major brands or ten thousand major brands, or they could even partner with major brands who want to do this, and say if you're com- if you're some no name supplier who ships us a Cuisinart electric kettle, we're not going to list it as if we're not going to commingle the inventory because you're nobody, right? Or you have to prove your relationship, or you have to do some providence or you have to prove yourself over time. They give you a you know they give you some kind of. Um, uh long payment system They do something to vet you before you're allowed to ship product that would be commingled. They don't, as far as I can tell, they do a little bit of something. I know there's issues with how they hold payment and so forth, but um, I don't think they have any real processes in place because it hasn't hit them yet. But if you have companies like Birkenstock saying, we're more willing to, um, to back out of uh, you know these relationships, I mean, not like Birkenstock. I don't know how many tens of millions of products they sell online, dollars of products they sell online, but um, it's got to be something. So them saying basically they're going to tell. I mean, this was a leaked memo, so we don't know. You know, this is internal stuff. It wasn't a Birkenstock announcement. But if you have companies saying if you buy a product for us from uh, if you buy a product with our name on it from Amazon, it is not authorized and it is likely counterfeit if it's being sold new. That is, I mean, that's... That is serious damage to Amazon's shoot.
1: brand, right? Because Who it, wants that? Retail is largely about trust, um, in my opinion. I mean, I guess for some people, it, and maybe this is the way Amazon sees it. Maybe, I guess for some people, retail is largely about price, and it's all just cheap, cheap price. And, you know, Walmart is sort of built on that. But... uh, there's, I think, Walmart has for people who who like Walmart, there is a certain trust, right? Like, I think part of it is that people trust that the prices are going to be low. They there's no you you know we don't have don't don't even bother going around town and pricing exactly pricing your dog food at at the supermarket too. Just get it at Walmart. You know it's going to be as cheap cheaper cheaper. Uh, and I, I think people know that when you buy you know uh, whatever brand dog food at Walmart, it really is whatever brand dog food you know it's it's the you know the the cuisinart thing you buy at walmart is a cuisinart uh i think it's serious 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 damage to amazon's trust that it's turning its reputation is starting to be like ebay where it's like who the hell knows <laughs> oh my what you're God. gonna get
0: uh, it's, it's true. I remember, by the way, Jeff Bezos said this. I, I worked for Amazon briefly for like six months in 96, 97, was hired by Jeff, who I knew when the company was starting out. So it was a little bit of a, you know, it wasn't nepotism per se. I did a great job. I did a great job. <laughs> did a bunch of stuff. There's still like, I just did a bunch of programs. I feel very happy with my time there, like what I got done. But uh, Jeff said at some meeting, and I, I, 20 years ago, I remember it very distinctly. He said, um, we're eventually going to become authoritative by, for price. And what I mean by authoritative is not that we always have the best price, that people don't think they need to go anywhere else. They Just assume we do. Right. And I was like, and that was, I was like, I thought it was like, huh, I wonder how that'll work out. It's like, boop, that's what's. So, you know, I run this book price comparison site called ISBN.nu. It's my ongoing programming experiment in running a large, like a high-traffic-ish site. It's millions of queries a day. People just you know punch an ISBN or you search on a book and it gives you price results from a dozen, 15 bookstores. And what's fascinating to me is over time, the revenue has gone down because people don't price compare that much. And most of the revenue, used to be Amazon was, I don't know, like 25% of the revenue. Now it's like 75%. Because people come and they search like, ah, let's get it at Amazon. I mean, that's kind of the result. All right. And there was a point at which like most I think the majority of my money comes from people doing textbook searches because then you have more uh-huh. variety. And I mean there's textbooks that sell there's people about textbooks that cost twelve hundred dollars and I get, you know, four to eight percent of that. I'm like, hooray, yeah. but holy crap. So uh, and that, so I get a lot of sales in uh, you know in July, August, and January, basically. It's kind of a funny pattern I have. Um, but it's been interesting to watch it because it's been this gradual change as as Amazon has just assumed to have the best price and as other stores, like, why would you buy? I, I bought a bunch of DVDs and Blu-rays from Barnes & Noble a few weeks ago because they had a ridiculous sale. They were doing 40 to 50% off everything already. Then they had a 30% off coupon you could add with it and they had free shipping. So I bought stuff some things for seventy to eighty percent off list price, or yeah, off list price. Uh, but I never buy from
1: BN.com. Um, let me take one final break here. Thank our third and final sponsor of the show. It is our old friends at Casper, a company that makes obsessively engineered mattresses at shockingly fair prices. I have recently been on vacation. We stayed in two different hotels, uh, split a little trip, and one hotel had, uh, uh, in my opinion, a terrible mattress. And I woke up every day, and I was a little miserable. And then we immediately uh, spent the second half of the trip in a different hotel, which had a terrific mattress. And I sort of I, I thought of Casper, and I thought, you know, this because a lot of times if you don't think about it, you don't get to compare one day after another. What a difference a great mattress can make! I am one of those people who says, hey, you really do sleep a third of your life. It's worth getting a great mattress and a good bed. Uh, you spend so much time in bed. You don't. You probably spend more time in bed than you do anywhere else. Uh, why not get a great one? Well, Casper has created terrific mattress. They have an engineering team in-house that spent thousands of hours developing their Casper mattress. It combines springy latex and supportive memory phone for a sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. I love the fact that Casper just has one type of mattress. All you do is pick your size. You just pick a size and that's the mattress. Because how the hell would you pick? Like if, if they had like seven different types of mattresses, how would you pick I don't know how to pick. I just, I trust that somebody who becomes a mattress engineer is going to do the job for me, right? It's sort of like Apple in that regard where they're going to just do That's What design is design is making choices. Well, Casper has figured out what they think is the best way to make a mattress. Um, now maybe you disagree. Maybe you get it. You don't like it. Well, guess what? They have a hundred night home trial. So if you buy the thing, take it up the steps and they they vacuum seal these things into the most ridiculously little, you cannot believe that there is like a queen or king size mattress in one of these boxes. Um, it, it, you take it up in a room, follow the directions. It sucks all the air out of the room to fill it up. <laughs> and all of a sudden you've got this little box. Now you've got a, a queen or a king size mattress, whatever you need. If you don't like it, you have a hundred nights. And if you don't, you, you just go to the website and say, take my mattress back. They give you all your money back and they take care of the hassle of getting the mattress out of your house. Uh, they, they, that's how confident they are and how few people actually take them up on it. So if you have any reluctance to buy a mattress online because you haven't actually sat there in a gross showroom where other people have laid on the same mattress and and poked at it before, uh, you don't have to worry about it. You can't lose. Um. I have heard from readers, a lot of readers. It's just the craziest thing in the world to me that I have become a like a spokesperson for a mattress company. <laughs> Among the many things I never thought I would ever do in life is sell mattresses. Uh, but I, I, it's so funny to me. But. Readers write to me and say, you know, I, I just moved. I had to get a new mattress and I got one of the Casper things. I, you know, and expected that they would send it back or whatever. They're like, this is great. This is like staying in like a, the best hotel. It is a great mattress. Uh, so get yours today. Go to casper.com slash the talk show. Casper. C A S P E R slash the talk show. Use the code the talk show with the the, and you save fifty bucks on your mattress. And the prices are great. It's seven fifty for full, eight fifty for queen, nine fifty for a king. A king size mattress for nine fifty. You save fifty. It's only nine hundred bucks. Most stores that's like two grand. It really is. That's how expensive mattresses are. So go to casper.com slash the talk show the next time you need a mattress, and maybe consider the fact that maybe you do need a mattress.
0: I want someone to do that experiment like with the Mentos and Pepsis where they open a bunch of Casper mattresses in a room and, and see if all the air sucked out of the windows <laughs> pop in. Like, right. now I want to see.
1: That. Or if people can't <laughs> people can't breathe. <laughs> uh, can't
0: breathe, Casper.
1: Last thing on my agenda for this show was this issue where uh, this, this guy, Milo, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce his
0: name. Yiannopoulos. Yiannopoulos. I believe it is Yiannopoulos.
1: Uh, sort of a... a Uh, conservative agitator slash political columnist. Uh, I'm not quite sure how to describe him for people who aren't familiar with
0: him. Uh, He's the very, very, very successful troll. Yes. Very successful. Charming in a way that only people with an English accent can ever get away with while being, he's he's a younger Boris Johnson for people into politics. (laughs) Uh, Younger, younger, nastier Boris Johnson. And
1: this relates to what you were talking about before, where there is some subset of, uh, he's a participant in, in this new subculture called the alt right, uh, which is, you know, I don't want to get too much into politics of it, but um, there is a subset of this movement and of the internet at large uh, that is, <laughs> of all the things in the world to be upset about, very uh, downright angry that uh the ghostbusters reboot is, features an all women cast of ghostbusters that the the people actually busting ghosts are uh four women when in the original movie I, there were four men and they're very upset about this and uh i i don't really know why uh it seems very strange to me i i, I you know <laughs> people to me this is a sign that these people have some very uh I, I think if you're upset that Ghostbusters is now all women, it is a very good sign that you have some very significant issues with women. Um, well, this guy, uh, I think I'm being fair here. Um, somehow, a week ago, Leslie Jones, also speaking of uh, very talented current uh, I, I SNL have, cast members. I have to
0: interrupt you. I love, Le- more than Kate McKinnon, I love Leslie Jones so much. So much. Because she is... The kind of comedian you do not see on television. Not just that right. she's black, but she's like a statuesque. She's like I don't know. She's six something. She's, she's six, six feet six tall. But she is not of a, a traditional you know figure. She is she is this large, beautiful totally outspoken woman with spiky hair who has this like incredible voice and she has this like intensity that like John Cleese at his best when he was like angry John Cleese in the early Monty Pythons and could go red face. Like she has this incredible energy and I love her and I love that she is on SNL. and I love that she's in this film.
1: Yeah. I think she's really, I like, she's really great on SNL too. I love, again, like you said, she's definitely not the sort of comedian that you typically see. Uh, I can't think of anybody else to even compare her to. No,
0: there's no. I mean, she's yeah, she's kind of her own. I mean, and I don't go to clubs, but she is, seems to be like her own, like yeah. unfor un like um she does not change herself for anybody yeah. else, and she got her place in this show and is doing her thing. Absolutely.
1: Uh, she's a good writer too. She's not just a good performer because mm. I, you know, she writes like her own bits. When she, uh, my favorites are when she's on the weekend update desk. <laughs> That's good. And, oh my God, this is so good. And that's really just you know th- those are her bits and they really Oh man. Good. Well, yeah. anyway, she's in the Ghostbusters. Yeah. She's busting ghosts and uh, was on Twitter engaging you know with the fans and somehow just started getting a, just a steaming un- ceaseless barrage of uh, at replies and mentions, uh, uh, racist, misogynist. Uh, I don't even know I mean there's got to be even more things <laughs> more offenses uh but really some just sick sick stuff from these uh gamergate troll types uh and she you know engaged with them she started retweeting some of them uh and this uh Milo guy jumped in on it and including and to me the one I think probably put him over the top was the one where he he posted a fake screenshot uh, that made it look as though Leslie Jones herself called somebody a uh, a kike, uh, and she oh, I didn't. Think
0: she I think there was one where she. He, uh the, the manufacturer screenshot, which had more than 140 characters, by the way, but it, which was part of the tell. But, but um, who's counting? <laughs> was accusing him, was like calling, you know, he's, gay, he's openly gay. He makes a big point of being conservative and very far right and gay. And he's just at the, na- the Republican National Convention hosting a party. Um, he's very into that, right? So he, she, the screen capture had something that was essentially making fun of him for being gay. I forget the exact detail. Right. Uh, so that was part of it, too. Like he was saying, look, I'm being attacked by her. Right when in fact she's not. It was manufactured. And, man- and, and,
1: and these fake screenshots were not. Uh, there's no way that you could. They're not parody. It's not like when our pal Darth, right. you know, posts a picture that makes Trump's <laughs> hand seem like they're Barbie doll size. You know what I mean? Like you, you, it's you know like that's parody. Yeah. And 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 nobody is you know it's nobody's fool. This is a deliberate attempt to to turn his followers to get them to actually believe that she was committing you know these these acts of hateful tweets as well which would encourage them to well hey if she's going to do that let's take the gloves off you know now fair is fair now we can you know go racist and misogynist on her uh and so what happened is this guy and this guy's been in trouble with twitter before where people have reported him for this sort of um abuse and harassment leading a a a cater of harassers before he at one point he was verified um you know, I think it was part of the whole thing. He is a journalist. He works. You know, he's worked for legitimate publications before. I think he's the tech correspondent for Breitbart now. If you don't know Breitbart, it's uh, a a well, I think all, it'll say everything you need to know. Is it's a conservative uh, leaning uh, website that was very, very early on the pro Trump.
0: well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It's the current state. It's also, if you haven't looked at Breitbart in a while, I'm not sure you should, but it was founded by Andrew Breitbart, who's like, was, was our age and then died. And yeah. I know people who liked them actually like, like friend to friend to friend liked him very much personally his site was oh he had tried to he would helped co-start Huffington Post and then left and started this far right thing and um, but it wasn't uh, didn't involve like white supremacy and and whatever it was it was pretty far right and he's the one who found uh, Elliot Spitzer's was it who's picked Anthony Wiener's Wiener didn't he have the shot of that I think I don't know anyway so but Andrew so Breitbart now if you remember what the site was like when Andrew Breitbart were alive and ran it this is like something even so far beyond that it makes me look back fondly at the time that Andrew Breitbart ran the site.
1: Yeah, when Breitbart ran it, my I was not a regular reader of it, but I I, I was familiar with it. Um, it was like something I didn't agree with, but not something that I found offensive. Whereas yeah. now, to me, it is it is borderline offensive. It's yeah, you know, exactly. To me, it comes about as close as you possibly can in today's uh, uh, even if you're anti quote unquote anti politically correct, there are still. Uh, modicums of uh, of discourse that we all agree to. It comes about as close as you can in in the guidelines of modern discourse to being uh, like white supremacist. In my yeah, opinion, it's,
0: yeah, it crosses into it, it almost. I mean, this is this is Milo's stick without even getting into the political aspect of it, because there are left left-side extremists who do the same thing. And we saw a lot of times the left does not get the same criticism as the right. The right seems to get a lot more coverage when they say extreme things and they verge into, you know, nativism and white supremacy and, things and you know, uh, anti-Semitism and so forth. The left has, unfortunately, the far left has has an anti-Semitic strain as well and other kinds of extremism. And the whole uh, Bernie period revealed, unfortunately, that a subset, not all, not all Bernie bros, not all Bernie supporters, but a subset of uh, Sanders, the people who allege to be, may have been good trolls, may have been deep supporters, also engaged in some pretty severe activity. And it's they, But they always try, especially, I mean, Breitbart does a great job of this, Milo especially. They're trying to come up to the line of hate speech without crossing to it where they get into something that's, that's actually yeah. actionable, where they could get sued and lose. Not just get sued, but sued and clearly lose, or in which they would cross some line in which... Some aspect of decency would involve, there might even be a criminal statue, like hate speech, is not protected in a line. You know, all speech is not absolutely protected in the United States. There's been a lot of trials about it, but certain kinds of hate speech used for incitement, uh, especially if you're publishing a website in multiple countries. Uh, I don't know if, I can't remember if Milo lives in the U S UK or he's back and forth, but like he could wind up being, you know, prosecuted if he crossed certain lines mm-hmm. in outside the U S than here anyway. So like they, but they are, they are knowingly skating up to the precipice and skating back but they will get as far as they can yeah. with the skates hanging over the cliff, you know, before they they uh, skate back
1: yeah uh and i don't think it's any coincidence i mean part of it is that leslie jones was engaging on twitter um but i don't think it's any coincidence that of the four ghostbusters uh, they went after the one who's not just a woman but is also black um this guy's been in trouble with Twitter before. At one point he was verified. That's why I mentioned he's a journalist. They they removed his verified badge, which is a very odd thing. I, I thought that was very unusual. Like I could see why Twitter wants to deal with this guy, but removing his verified badge was a very strange move to me because I, I didn't like it. I, I didn't like it either because it, it A it plays into this whole notion that having the verified badge is this mark of prestige, which to me is like nonsense I, I don't know i mean i got verified i didn't ask for it it was like I, it somehow it, what happened is when remember when matt honan got uh uh hacked oh yeah yeah so matt honan uh who's now at uh buzzfeed got hacked like two years ago and he wrote a great story about it and it was somehow that it was like you know it was sort of a. uh Social engineering, where his attacker called Apple and said, you know, claimed to be him and somehow got through a couple of the questions and got his, you know, mac.com, his iCloud account, um, uh, reset. And then once they had his email account, that was the email account used by his Twitter account. And so his at mat, you know, it seemed like the target of it was that because he has this very short, uh, Twitter handle at mat. Uh, Isn't that his Twitter handle? I think it used used to be. Yes, Uh,
0: that's right. It's super short. They really wanted that. I have a friend who has a very short handle that apparently it's part of her name, but it's four letters and it relates to some programming thing. So she is being regularly harassed by script kiddies and how to get someone permanently suspended because of their uh doxing attempts. Yeah.
1: Uh or, or yeah, it's a weird thing where like certain handles are so in demand. Jesse Char is at Jesse on Instagram. And oh, every po- yeah. every photo she posts, there's some girl named Jesse, you know, not the same person, but every time it's can I have your Twitter handle.
0: There's you know, uh, Dave Rutledge uh, uh works at Meh, um our friends at Matt, which yeah. is I've been writing for Meh, by the way, which is a fun place to write for. He's at uh, he's at underscore. Yeah, and his wife is at underscore, underscore, and their child is at underscore, underscore, underscore. Well, his wife's at underscore, underscore got ripped off, got hijacked somehow, and he eventually, he kind of was trying to, they're trying to go through channels. They eventually kind of bumped up, like, anybody help us? And somebody at Twitter was like, got your back and took care of it. But um, she almost lost at underscore, underscore.
1: Ugh. Well, anyway, they took away his verified badge, which is weird, because to me, it's almost like, to me, that isn't like we're punishing you. It's like, to me, that would be like, we're no longer certain that this account is who you, is you. Yeah. But they knew it was him. There's no question that it was him. So removing the verified badge is very strange. Well, well, you
0: know, but... Uh, the reason they do it, though, I think the reason they did it, and I, I and I have the same reaction you do too. It's like Twitter shouldn't be anointing people. They originally started the Verified program to help celebrities and some news outlets um, prevent uh, to have a legitimate account that showed it wasn't being impersonated that they'd vetted it, right? And in, they used to have requirements that you had to have two factor authentication or some other protection on your email, uh, or they would ask. And so they vetted entire newsrooms where the newsroom had shown them or discussed, um, you know, their techniques to prevent email from being hijacked, so that they wouldn't be overtaken especially there were like ap hijacks and a bunch of news outlets got hijacked a few years ago so um but the thing the the thing that, that uh the reason i think they did it is if you're verified i'm not sure you probably know this you know there's they have the tools that you see only verified accounts so yes. if you're looking at replies so i think this was to get him to not show up in the replies to uh, other people are verified like celebrities and whoever I whoever. Ever, yeah i know because uh, you know i tweeted so um chrissy teigen uh the supermodel I think she is also awesome. Like, I don't even know her supermodeling career. Like, I've seen pictures of her. She's, like most supermodels, one of the most beautiful women on the planet. Great, right? But I don't, it's, it's fine. She's beautiful. Um, Sports Illustrated model, right, cover model. But that I didn't follow her because of that. At some point, I noticed people retweeting these incredibly funny, really direct stuff she's saying about, you know, not just like feminism or politics, whatever, but the way that which she has to defend herself, she's married to John Legend, about people telling her she doesn't deserve him and he's been duped and whatever. She is awesome. She is so forthright and so great. She has a cookbook out. So... I t- she tweeted something last night. I wrote something back to her. I can't remember just some little thing in passing. I don't think she's going to read it. She favorited it, and I'm like, good God! Just the thing has four thousand favorites on it. Why would she do that? I'm like, oh, she's using this filtering. I have a verified tag, so there is a little bit of a superpower that is associated with it. Is you have more visibility to people who are verified. So I'm you know some random journalist who works in a daylight basement, um, and I can but because of that, it's like a, that. I think is the power of that blue check mark. Yeah. Well what ha-
1: yeah, what happened for people like me and you is after Honan got hacked, and I think he got hacked I think I might, I might be misremembering the details. I think he got hacked though. I think it was very clear it was about his his MAT Twitter uh, boy, handle. I
0: think you're totally right. But
1: it was early t- but yeah Twitter, I think as a precaution thought, well maybe it's because he's a tech reporter and that all of a sudden in a very short period of time, like I think me and you probably got verified right around the same time. A lot of people at Macworld did
0: um, I had to wait a bit. I had to ask them for actually a few years because oh, I thought. Well, the thing was, I felt there was this developing thing where a lot of journalists were getting marked. And I'm like, look, I'm a freelancer. Yeah. Not having a blue check mark makes me look like I'm not legitimate on Twitter. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't care or not. But if you're going to have a system, I want to be in it so that then. And, and likewise, like I, I can direct message people who don't have DMs open and they can DM me even if I have DMs off because we're verified. Like, that's a funny thing. There's a couple little things that are. It's a very very strange club. Yeah, it's a weird club. And it's like, it's got supermodels, the president of the United States, and you and me. It's great. I love being in this club.
1: I've told this before, and it is incredibly embarrassing. But it's uh, my son told his friends at school that I'm verified, and all the girls in the class thought it was the coolest thing that they did. (laughs)
0: That's awesome.
1: They were like, no way. They didn't believe him. They didn't believe him. So, like, they.
0: Yeah, they, bring up a Twitter yeah, they like,
1: opened up a Chromebook and oh loaded my, my Twitter God. page, and they were like, that's so cool.
0: Oh, my gosh. That
1: is awesome. That it awesome. is terrible. I, I think it's just dreadful. But anyway, <laughs> Milo, y- Yiannopoulos, they they took away his, right. his badge. They had suspended him temporarily for similar incidents in the past, and he'd always come back. And after this one, uh, right before he was supposed to go into some kind of event in Cleveland for the Republican National uh, convention he he received an email that said uh this is it you're done. you know your account is permanently suspended yeah uh one of the weird things about that i think they did the right thing uh i think this guy was abusing twitter and i don't think twitter should tolerate it but it is weird it, it it's There's a weird, like, down the memory hole aspect to it where once his account is suspended, all of his tweets are gone.
0: Yeah, I don't, yeah, I know. That's, you know, so when they do temporary suspensions, they will often make people uh, agree to delete specific tweets uh, through an automated process before they're allowed to the account back. So those only those tweets are deleted. Like, however odious something is, I'm like, well, this is deleting history. Now no one knows yeah. that he said these hundred thousand terrible things.
1: Yeah, and that was part of it. And and there were, you know, I wrote briefly about this on Daring Fireball. I mm-hmm. support this, and my take is that his supporters are, say, and I've seen this argument with other people. This is not the only time, but that when when something like this happens, and after instigating this sort of abuse, then it. it they say, well, now that they've suspended his account, they're obviously they're censored. This is Twitter is a company that censors conservatives and uh, suppresses free speech. Right, right. As though the right to harass people on Twitter, and and I don't think there can be any argument that what was done to Leslie Jones was outright harassment. I mean, she was she seemed genuinely emotionally distressed at what she was seeing and dealing with. Um, the, the argument that that is that should be protected free speech is just nonsense, and it just shows that these people are, in my opinion, not not just you know racist and and misogynist, but that they're outright like sociopaths. That they yeah. they're they're so emotionally uh, stunted that 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 they're it's very hard. You really can't argue. You can't rationalize with these people. And and there were other readers. There were I got some feedback from people uh you know who read Daring Fireball. Very thoughtful and and you know, some people I know, some just brand, you know, random readers, who were very, you know, said I'm very uncomfortable with this. You know, I don't like I'm not racist or misogynist. These weren't people who are Milo Yiannopoulos fans, but they were like, I'm just very uncomfortable with Twitter um, you know, saying that somebody, you know, this is allowed and this isn't that it should be a free-for-all, but a free, you can't have a free-for-all. You just, and on a, well, you could, you could run a service that's a free-for-all, but it's not going to be a pleasant
0: place. Yeah. Among other things, I mean, Twitter has rules of engagement, has terms of service and uh, he was violating them. Uh, And, and the question is how, like the reason they got criticism about this is famous persons attacked famous prominent person who's already under attack as part of like a cultural war against, you know, People who may align with Trump and people who may align with other progressive movements. Uh, so, and I actually saw Leslie Jones interviewed um, by her friend Seth Myers in his show, and it was lovely. And she was talking about this whole situation. Oh, and, really? Uh, I didn't see that yeah it I'll was nice. it's like four or five minute clip and the, one of the things they showed was a bunch of people who'd sent into seth meyer like these little videos of just how you know you're awesome leslie you're so inspirational it was like this like a little girl and adult couple and just like all kinds of people it was great and she was practically crying because it was just you know so you'll being so nice about it but um she said um he said you know should it rise seth asked a very good question he was like should this rise the level like you and i are kind of well known like we have a lot of you know whatever a lot of followers and she's like this should be and she said you know out, you know, this is for it should be for everybody. No one should go. Like he said, yep. she said, if I never spoke up about this, no one would ever have known it happened to me. Um, but I made a fuss. Right. And, um, if I, she never talked back to the people, it still would have affected her because it's asymmetric. And right. I think that's, that's the issue. The, the question I would say too, when you look at Milo, like he's a provocateur, that's his stock and trade. He talks about being a provocateur. He wants to get a reaction and he's very good at it. Now it's unfortunate that what he wants, that he's not, you know in my mind, funny or interesting or, or decent or, or whatever. I think he's off the charts in terms of, you know, being practically a sociopath in the way that he acts. It's, it's, he acts consistently in his self-interest without regard for any standards of morality or decency. And that's, you know, it doesn't matter. I don't care if he's left or right. I, it doesn't. I'm not even talking about any political view he has. It's his behavior. And it's not political correctness when you're specifically trying to say things that you know will cause... Like, political correctness is when you are... Told not say something that is a reasonable statement that is not designed specifically to harm someone and is actually part of social discourse that needs to occur to improve the social good that is political correctness i've encountered it. there's a lot of things as somebody who's you know left the center, maybe a liberal lifelong democratic voter. There are things that I do not feel uh, comfortable discussing in public because I know I can't discuss them away without having a blowback that would be pretty severe. Even though I have no bad intent, and I want to talk through an issue as opposed to make statements, right? Mm. So there is there is a chilling effect in certain areas. that I would call that because you can't even bring up um, this happens like easy case, which I can talk about. It's like look at Israel, support of Israel. I'm a Jew. My whole family, you know, I'm married to someone who's not Jewish, but I, my whole family back to whatever is Jewish. I'm very uncomfortable with Israel. I think they're engaged. I don't, I'm don't. i not going to get into the political stuff, but like, I'm very uncomfortable with Israel. Let's leave it there, right? It is very difficult to have any sane and sensible conversation about Palestinians, Arabs, and Israel with any combination of people, other Jews, non-Jews, Muslims, whatever. No two people can get together and talk without somebody chiding you for some opinion about it, no matter what your stance is. And there is, that's sort of a problem with race in America too. It's very difficult to have a discussion because no two people can agree how to talk about it without essentially accusing each other of engaging in something. That is a form of political correctness. Going out of your way to specifically, knowingly inflict emotional harm or inspire threats against somebody, even when you do it with a way that's plausibly deniable that is not convincing at all, there's no question what that is. So if Milo were super left-wing and thought it was funny to go after you anti-Semitic things against Jewish actress or something. Right. Um, and I'm saying that not that the left is all anti-Semitic, but it's the closest. You're not going to have left-wing people go after black people typically, but you know and that happens too. You have issues with intersectional feminism, blah, 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 blah. I won't go into that. But anyway, so it doesn't. I don't think it's a political thing. He's not raising a conservative no. point against Leslie. He's not raising an issue even about the movie. Like He has a cultural, the whole Gamergate movement, alt-right merged together with it, and even the Ghostbusters thing has to do with people who feel like People who were in a what they thought was a majority situation never felt the benefits of privilege, and now reject entirely the notion that they have any privilege. But th- so there's a structural, cultural argument there that he that the basis of which is a Ghostbusters is a terrible thing because of. But that right. is not a conservative viewpoint. But he's
1: he's parlaying off the the, the his followers actually. I, I think this is the point you're trying to make. Actually, well-founded concern that political correctness. The dial right now is set too far, and that things that should we should be able to have discussion about, we feel like you can't.
0: Right, it's funny, but whatever political correctness is raised, it's always about issues where I'm like, that's not political correctness. That's someone wanting to say something offensive and not liking the right. consequences, as opposed to a valid uh, – when I say valid, I mean, everyone will have valid differently. This, this is the thing I want to get at with speech, too, is I wrote this long screen a few days ago. I wrote like 40 tweets in a tweet storm. I thought I was going to write two, you? and I wrote it. Really? No, it's crazy, right? Really, Glenn? And I got a remarkable amount of response, but I thought people wouldn't listen. I just had to say it because it's after Leslie Jones thing. And it's like, I think there's a clear difference. I, I don't study the First Amendment, so I can't tell you where this sits in law. There's probably people have this more to find. There's offensive speech, and then there's like abusive, hate-threatening speech, right? And hate speech is a difficult thing under the First Amendment because the First Amendment is so broad. But I think Twitter... Um, should not encourage offensive speech, but I think it should allow it. And when I yes. say offensive, it's things you don't want to hear are offensive. Yes. And sometimes those things are very offensive. If somebody wants to, on their own account, not adding me, say, um, and not talking about me, let's say, let's say the best case. There they, are Nazis who want to say, Jews are terrible. I think they should all go to a gas oven. I wish this would happen. I hate the fact that the world is run by Jews. Right. If somebody wants to say that, well, that's very general. It's awful. It's offensive. I don't want to hear it. I don't have to follow them. If, rather they're using their account to exchange information to create you know to organize around notions of hate to create um not even to create policies but to uh to threaten other people to gain strength that allows them to then practice hate speech against other people um or if they're using their twitter accounts even as like coded ways to organize or promote things that they link to on websites or everyone knows on a website and there's some question with milo about like what he's posting on breitbart versus what he's doing on twitter and he may be more careful on twitter to not be as uh you know provocative in some ways as he was on breitbart even like that's a different thing so like i don't so even if nothing milo said specifically individually if it weren't sent to uh leslie was offensive like vile but not actually abusive, that maybe there's a case made that that person—and there's some, there's some gray area there about saying things you don't want to hear. Because, John, there's tons of things that people say that you don't want to hear that are valid political opinions that you wouldn't say that person should be banned unless you actually wanted to decrease free speech. Right. It's a very different thing. And,
1: you know, it's a funny thing. It just isn't—a it, it, a subset of these people seem to really think that free speech is—that uh, uh, that it's absolute that you should they should be able to do whatever they want say what say whatever they want to whatever they want and if they want to add reply glenn that you should be put in an oven they should be allowed to and you know you you should figure out how to filter it if you don't want to see it it's right. your for- that it's your problem and i say that's hogwash that's it's absolute nonsense uh and i know that these analogies uh, for between the online world and the real world always break down they there's always because you know that's It online is so totally different. But like my analogy was that nobody would ever tolerate a restaurant. No, 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 no sane restaurant would ever tolerate allowing a a person to come in and harass fellow patrons and just go up and, uh, you know, uh, you know, make disparaging remarks about the color of their skin or that, uh, you know that they seem to be same sex couple or whatever for anything you wouldn't. Why would you allow that? It would be, it would be toxic. And that's exactly what these storms of people harassing, People on Twitter are all about. That's no, it's,
0: it's Leslie Jones. he said exactly. She said, "If I'm in a restaurant, she says exactly the same thing." She said, "Maybe I'm she in read a restaurant, my restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Maybe. in a restaurant, and a couple of people are shot in front of me. Like that's the restaurant's problem. That's not my problem. I want to eat that restaurant. I like their restaurant. I want to come back. Right. But if people are gonna be shot there, I'm not going to go there." And yeah, I think there's also this: that free speech is not the right to be heard; it's the right to talk. So here's here's what I see. I see that
1: it it is actually hard to. Uh, behave antisocially in the real world, especially after you get out of the older you get. It's, you know, kindergarten, <laughs> there's a lot of antisocial behavior, Good and point. as you work your way through high school, it decreases, but there's off you know, a lot of people have memories of a lot of antisocial tormentors in, you know, middle school and high school. Um and then all of a sudden it just magically goes away when you go to college. And in the real world, in most venues, it is extremely difficult to behave antisocially. There's all sorts of uh, social pressure, and there's physical pressure. Like if you behave the way some of these people behave on Twitter in the real world, there's a very good chance that you'd get punched. I mean it, I mean you you would actually get punched. Like if, uh, so for example, here's an example. Uh, You and I both know an awful lot of, uh, we've seen it in the last year or two, we've seen women, uh, who get, you know, stand up and speak out on, um, on something that upsets these people. And then they they get literally told, literally threatened with rape or death in a tweet at, at insert, you know, the username, uh, you know, I know where you live, uh, you're going to get raped, uh, if you did that to somebody in real life, there is a very good chance that you—well, no, you should be like arrested. Uh, but if like if somebody did that to my wife, I would, you know, I would be prepared to punch the guy, like because that's a dangerous situation. People don't do that. I mean, that just doesn't happen. So for these people who, for whatever reason, in their minds, want to behave antisocially. The online world, and we've known this, you know, like you said, you've been on CompuServe since 1968. I mean, the online world has seen this from the beginning days, that it, there's antisocial behavior that you just don't encounter in the real world because you, there's no, there are no repercussions. You can get away with it. You can do it. So people have gotten into these hordes that, that harass people, and they seem to enjoy doing it. And what they're being told now, like with this Milo getting kicked off Twitter, is no, you can't do it. Well, if they can't do it, then they're all of a sudden they don't have an outlet for this antisocial behavior. And part of it too is that you can behave, you can go off into uh, what's the 4chan or whatever, and just right, hang yeah. out, hang out with your fellow, uh, uh, you know, sickos, <laughs> and do this. The the beauty of Twitter from this, these these weirdos' perspective is that they can at replied these. These women and minorities, and get their uh, get their jollies by knowing that the people who check their replies are going to see it. And then when they engage, it's like they just go bananas because it's like they know. Then it's confirmation. Like once they knew that Leslie Jones was actually seeing this stuff and reacting to it, it just made it worse because this is exactly what they want to do. They want to behave in an extremely uh, almost sociopathic way, and they can. And there's no other outlet for it in the world. And so now that Twitter is standing, you know, so they're standing behind free speech. But what they really want is, they want their uh, special bullying venue to remain available.
0: Special bullying venue is probably not what Twitter wants as its no as its it motto. Definitely it's, shouldn't. But, no, that's but that's the
1: way these guys see Twitter. That is exactly the way they see Twitter.
0: Yeah, there's a high degree of asymmetricality in Twitter that could be changed. And uh, Randy Harper you knows I've been working on. Tools. I use her uh, good, uh, what's it called? Uh, good Game block list I forget, GG yeah. Auto Blocker um, with uh, Block Together is the tool. And so you subscribe. Block Together is a web app with a Twitter API integration. You log into it and then you can add shared lists that other people, you and other people maintain. And you can set a few throttles and things. So Block Together exists. It's a third party thing. Twitter allows it. And there are like 12,000 people on Randy's list that are auto generated from people who follow a few major accounts, which will change because one of those few major accounts was milo's so which was at nero um and oh twitter by the way when it block permanently suspends an account that account is dead forever at nero will never be used again right you now until the sun burns out potentially uh so anyway, so uh, Randy Harper wrote this thing. I just someone asked me about it the other day. It's uh, in February. It's a Medium piece. You can search for Randy Harper Medium Twitter ideas and uh, find it in the show notes if you put it in I don't know whatever. But she had like twenty three ideas for Twitter. She's a developer. She's been working at their API. She's met with them. She knows how everything works on the you know the outside of the black box. She knows it as well as anybody trying to develop anti-abusive tools. The stuff she mentioned, some of it's trivial. Some of it's harder. She's not sure the severity of work required for all of it. But those things are still out there. Yeah. And so the issue with Twitter isn't so much that people can gang together and abuse. It's that you as a party receiving it, it is bad at asymmetrical warfare where someone can get a hundred, someone can either create a thousand accounts and tweet at you or get a hundred thousand people. Like the the, the Twitch, uh, Twitchy, there's a conservative site and they will often say, basically that person is bad. And then all the people who follow Twitchy or go to the website will go off. I get, I say, I'll say, uh, respond to something Sally Cohen says, uh, you know, I have a little back and forth with her about something and we're being funny or whatever. I think I'm being funny. And I will suddenly get all these people who hate follow Sally Cohen. I've never been targeted by Twitchy yet, for as far as I know. Uh, and uh, I get like, you know, 100 or 200 tweets from people who don't spell and have flags in their bios. And just like, you're a foreign, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like, it's not even intelligible. It's just like random anger. There's nothing I can do to stop it except blocking one at a time. Even the auto-block lists don't help me. Hmm. So if there were tools, like if you started getting a lot of tweets, you could, like if there were dials and tools you could adjust, there are things that could happen that would allow, that would either temporarily or as a permanent block you could prevent. The course tool that Twitter is going towards is that thing I was talking about. They have an app, I forgot what it's called, at least a separate app that's basically it's good if you have a verified account works fine otherwise but it's a little tailored towards being a verified person with a large number of followers and mostly posting rather than doing a ton of interaction with everybody um i've forgotten the name of it but uh so Twitter just the other day said they're going to open verification to everybody with a, pro- a opaque process that I think involves sending a picture ID to them. Yeah. So you're going to give them your OD. So conceivably, this is one step on the road to more people being verified. And what if there are the 100,000 most prolific, engaged Twitter people are all verified? Well, that can be removed as well. So maybe Twitter is moving towards a more asymmetrical model where we're only following. We give up following random people if you can't be bothered to vo- verify I've thought for a long time, Twitter should offer a basic level of verification where you had to use a phone number to confirm, even though phone numbers can be disposable and whatever, Mm. it's a high enough bar that if you're taking, getting a text from a phone number. You're, you know, it's a hassle. If that account gets banned or blocked, it's a hassle to get their phone number and you can only get so many, you can't get 10,000, a 10, hundred thousand phone numbers, but they could have some basic level that doesn't involve sending a photo ID. And I could say, look, I don't want to deal with people who are completely anonymous, I only want to see people in my timeline who I follow. Uh, and you know, or, or I could say, only people who follow me, who um, I want to see them. So I let people who follow me if they've opted in, because I get most of my hate from people who don't follow me. And I think that's true in general. People don't follow yep. Brianna Wu, and then spew hate at her. They're not followers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, typically, and some people do. Some people follow you because they think it gives them a little extra. Whatever. So I only want to see things in my timeline if people follow me, because I can block them, um, or I could change that. It's mean, a checkbox. And from people, or, you know, or for people who don't follow me who, if they're not retweets from somebody else, that's cool. I'll see people who I follow as retweets, but people who have gone through a very basic level of verification that doesn't cost money. Like, I don't want this to be a first world, developing world thing or whatever. Um, But there's all these things they could do. They could put lots of throttles in. They could be monitoring behavior. Uh, John, you know there's a setting called uh, filter low-quality tweets in your account, right?
1: uh, No, I did not know that.
0: It's only available to verified people so far. It's been available for like two years. And if you check that, they use their machine learning. I think it's using machine learning to filter out tweets that look like they aren't very good.
1: I don't know... I don't know. I don't know what it is. I think part of it, uh, obviously, is that I am a white man. Um, I can do things like write about Milo Yiannopoulos in a very critical way. And at least, knock on wood, to date, I don't get, I get very, I, I, I got responses in Twitter, but it wasn't any, I wouldn't call it abuse. I mean, and there were people who disagreed and there were obvious, you know, people who staunchly disagreed and a little bit of it was ugly, but I don't get any kind of mob. No, it never happens. Whereas, if I think if I was, uh, you know, uh, Joan Gruber, I think there's a very good chance that <laughs> I, I, I really do. I, so I, a B
0: test. I've thought about A B testing, like creating a fake account that was under the name of a woman with a woman's face with someone's permission. Some people have tried this on, like, OK Cupid. They've gotten a friend's permission to use their image and just been like, you know. But then it becomes, I mean, it becomes a stunt. I don't want to be a stunt. Left women yeah. live through this. People of color. Right. People with who are not, you know, cis male straight uh white it's like they already have enough problems that I don't need to pretend to do um like racism tourism or something like that yeah. gender um, tourism
1: I should try it though cuz it would be interesting <laughs> I actually just by coincidence last night I crafted what I I think I don't know how else you'd measure it I should go to Favstar. I think I wrote my two most popular tweets of all time last night
0: No no really
1: Yeah and it the beating my old one which was um my original all-time best tweet was like from 2009, and I said, "Let me see if I can get it right." I said, "I'm looking it up here." I don't drink. I don't gamble.
0: Oh yeah, and you know, I, I found I found it. my one vice. I'm reading your own tweet to you. Yeah, read my it. One, my, okay, I don't drink. Sorry, I don't gamble. I don't drink. My one vice is buying a new iPhone every summer. Well, that and lying about drinking and gambling. <laughs> I remember that one. That was great. That was 2,590 days ago.
1: Yes. That's my was previously my all-time favorite tweet. But last night oh after... Oh, my God. I'm looking
0: at your numbers. This is hilarious.
1: What are you using to look at them?
0: I'm using... Fa- I like Favstar. Yeah, how do I I'm do that? Admit, I'm just vain enough. I'm looking at... Oh, Nick Kristoff and our, my friend Susan Orlean uh, both retweeted it. And um, Chris
1: Hayes from MB- MSNBC retweeted wait, it. Yeah.
0: Oh, I'm looking at one of them. Oh, yes. Yeah, so Nick Kristoff and Nick Susan... Nick Kristoff, columnist for The one. New York Times.
1: Susan and Orlean, then, staff writer for The New Yorker. Oh, yeah. Chris-
0: Baratunde... Baratunde.
1: Yeah. It's yeah. unbelievable. Like somehow it got into the cycle of like top political reporters and they all retweeted it. So.
0: Well, you, you're followed by a, You have an interesting group of followers. that overlaps. And so people who, uh, this is what ha- I've had some breakouts. I have like 6,000 retweets, which is by, like uh, 50 times more than anything I've ever said before, because I made a comment about Brexit. Um, because the morning after I'm like, I'm listening to everything. And I'm like, this isn't going to happen. Like there is a plan here. And I wrote something about basically like Brexit, you know, this could be such political suicide that, that Brexit's not going to happen. And it got retweeted like 6,000 times and oh my God, did I get interesting responses? Those were actually interesting. I got hundreds and hundreds of replies from people, some of whom thought I was an idiot and I, and some people thought I, you know, I'm like, I don't vote in the UK. I don't have an opinion on this, but I love the UK. I want it to succeed. Um, But I also got very informed things by people who are who are torn about it or had voted for Remain anyway. But yeah, yours blew. This blew away.
1: So I have two tweets, one after another, and I connected them with Tweetbots, whatever they call it. Uh, Let's play what if? (coughs) What if Barack Obama had five children with three different women? (laughs) Immediately followed by what if Hillary Clinton had five children with three different fathers?
0: I thought those were pretty brilliant. I was, I, you know what's funny? And this is not to not credit you with originality and wit, because you have a lot of it. I'm going to yeah. bl- butter you up. But when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, has no one tweeted that before? Because the minute you say it, it's absolutely obvious because they're all, you know, they're on stage, the five right. kids are on stage, and you're like, holy crap, but like nobody had said it as succinctly and with the perfect timing as you had. Right. and great. so I
1: did my, uh, at repl- you know, so the one tweet, the one mentioned, the, one with, the first one with Barack Obama has uh, 3,100 <laughs> retweets, and then the Hillary Clinton one has 3,834 retweets. Yeah. So I, even though I have an unusual Twitter account and a large number of followers, I had two tweets that were obviously a little uh, uh, provocative, uh, presented to an awful lot more people who then who usually read my tweets, and so my, and I, my current yeah. at reply stream is uh, <coughs> I can't get to the bot, I can't keep up with it right now. It
0: must be out of control. I'm looking at yeah, and when I look at the people who've retweeted it, there's a bunch of people in there that I know, like uh, Mike Montero and John Syracusa and people are definitely the tech side of things. Uh, and then you know, so it's a lot of the a lot of the fo- and then like I mean, looking at the top retweets and then it's a lot of just really interesting people who obviously found this through another thing but some of them have 50,000 60,000 yeah. <coughs> there's an incredible i mean this is what's interesting about twitter is like it makes everyone have the ability to be a pundit or to be a stand-up comedian yep. and reach an audience they don't otherwise and it's like sometimes you feel like you're shouting into the void like there's times max temkin asked me you know from a cards against humanity he asked me i don't know a while ago he's like you know, everybody who follows you agrees with what you're saying. Do you feel compelled to say it? And he wasn't, he was mildly castigating me because I'd gone on about something. And, uh, and I was like, ah, you know, I did go on about something. And I'm like, you know, I don't think everyone who follows me actually, like, I don't know how many people who follow me read every tweet it's a percentage. I look at Twitter. Nobody. I'm sorry. That's, I didn't mean to be such straight. I meant more like you can use Twitter analytics and anyone can log in and you actually get to see the impressions, like what percentage of your audience sees it. And it's fascinating. It's good. It's good and bad for the ego too. Um, we got to wrap up. Okay. There's there's things that, yes. So there's things that I say where I'm glad at times to be able to say, I just need to say this because I want other people to know that other people feel it. Uh, I, the bottom line, Twitter has got to get
1: a handle on this. It cannot just be something that they address <gasps> when it's somebody of Leslie Jones's stature. This needs exactly. to be something that everybody feels like they're not going to be abused. Not, and I agree, there is a fine line and it is worrisome in Twitter. It's difficult and I, I trust that it can be done, which is there should not try to prevent offensive speech or ideas that some people find offensive yeah. for being expressed on Twitter, but they should absolutely make it seem as though people are not going to be attacked. And they're the different human being. I don't know if you could do it all algorithmically. I really don't. I think you can use some algorithms to help. But I think when somebody reports abuse, I think somebody at Twitter who has any bit of empathy can easily discern this is just an offensive idea versus this is a personal attack on this other user. And some it, of it's it,
0: some of it's nuanced, but when a thousand right. accounts with fewer than a hundred followers all tweet within a few minutes of each other at one account, I think machines can learn what that means.
1: And I would even be in favor of in terms of the nuance of if there's any doubt you know, don't suspend the account, you right, know, right. but, but it's so many cases where it's easily should be recognized. And the other thing that Twitter cannot, you can say, well, there's a scaling problem there. Twitter has an enormous head count. Uh, It It's, I don't know how sustainable that is. I think it's, it's, you know, we, we could do a whole segment on the show about it is why in the world does Twitter have so many employees? Because it doesn't seem like there's much new stuff going on. They, they certainly have the resources to hire a staff that can look into this abuse. And I think it absolutely needs to be done. And it ties into the Amazon thing where it really is hurting Twitter's reputation, where Twitter is get more and more getting a reputation as a place where if you participate, you, especially as a woman,
0: uh, you're, you have a very good chance of being abused. That's right. Twitter spends literally hundreds of millions of dollars a year, literally hundreds of millions of dollars a year on R&D. It's, um, it's astonishing. I don't know what exactly they count as R&D, but it's a big yeah. part of their expense. So they're working on it. But um, yep.
1: Bottom line. Anyway, Glenn, thanks for being here. You've got uh, new book, new books to promote. Two books. I have.
0: I have a thing to. Yeah, I got. I um got deep into the Slack. Well, do you do you use Slack? I know that you were a model on.
1: I, I am uh, a regular participant on one Slack.
0: That's yeah, and it's Slack. You can you get? I have six Slacks I'm part of, and some of them, thankfully, are not very loud. But I like them all, but it can get out of control. So yeah, my friends at uh, the Take Control Books, Adam and Tanya. Anks, long time Mac folks. Um, we were talking about like we started using it, and it's like uh, it's it's not quite like Pokemon Go. That's not that addictive, but boy, it went from zero to, you know, millions really quickly. And we were complaining amongst ourselves, like, how do we do this? What's this thing? We're like, oh, if we can't figure this out and we've used a thousand software packages in our life, perhaps it would be useful to do a book. So I did a book that's uh, Take Control of Slack Basics that is for um, people who are users who want to be able to master it because the online documentation, it's good. Our friend Matt Howie, he's, you know, involved in documentation, some aspect, of Metafilters founder, great guy.
1: And now uh, Slack's head of Documentation or something? Is it head of talk? Yeah, I don't know. They're, they're working on,
0: on their side, but like they have. a he, different, he writes for Slack. Yeah, they do a different. They do a different thing. Like Onion line documentation is not like uh, what a take control book is about. Like they're experientially different things, as you know. You've worked on manuals, yes. you've worked on other stuff, and so I wrote a book that's like it's divided into subjects using channels and messages and even how to do emoji and so forth. And it's the idea is you wake up one morning. So many people I know this happened to, you're 30 years old, 40, 50, and everyone's, you you get a message from the office, uh, we're using Slack starting today. You're like, oh, God, not another piece of software. So the book is partly for people who have sort of Slack thrown at them and other, you know, also for people who want to master it without having to go through and sort of discover everything. There's a lot of stuff in there. And then I wrote a complimentary book that's how to set up a Slack team which is pretty straightforward in some ways There's a lot of detail um and so if you don't have an it organization behind you but you want to set it up you want to run it well you want to make sure people uh, stay civil and how do you keep things correct and keep people from doing you know stupid things but also just set it up so it's as secure and sensible as you want so i have this great url you can go to takecontrol.com of course to rather.com course but i have SlackHelp.me. i got this url and i'm very happy about it SlackHelp.me. <laughs> i will absolutely
1: yeah. put it in the show notes i Thanks. love just by the way i know it's probably not probably you no well, maybe you did i don't know i know you know adam but i love the new uh cover design for the take control books oh
0: it's so it's so great it took a lot of years to figure out what we didn't like we, we, to this illustrative approach and then the minute i saw the new designs when they're in progress i'm like oh this is it it's like a discovering like you're cutting away yep. at a block of marble, and there's the sculpture inside. I think it's this probably thing.
1: no no surprise that, you know, you can guess that I, you know, you know my taste in graphic design. <laughs> but, well, one of the things that I really love about the new cover design is that to putting the, the where the author title is. It, the author title is in relatively small print, mm-hmm. but the topic is big print, which is right, because that's what Tick Control books are about. Yeah. They're very topical. There's like, they're, this is about Slack admin, so that's nice and big, real nice font, All caps, which I, of course, like, then the author name is down below real small, but because it's surrounded by white space, it is so prominent. And I love prominence in an author's name. Like, it's because that's to me is the whole point of the Take Control series is that they're not just churned out. These are like the best writers in our racket who do these things.
0: It's fun, too. I love writing eBooks. after. I mean, I kind of misprint, but, uh, you know, faster turnaround. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Slack, Slack's fun. It's it's fun. I know people. uh, Jeff Carlson knows longtime Mac writer. He and his wife have a two-person Slack because it's you can use it free. Yeah. Are, you know, with some limits, but not, you know, 10,000 people. We have a Slack group we set up. Um, if people go to slackhelp.me, there's a link. Uh, it's a public Slack team that anyone can join who just wants to understand what Slack is like without having to set one up. So it's for, it's called Slack Bits, and we're having discussions about Mac stuff, but also Slack Help. And it's great. We got several hundred people joined who just – they wanted a place to go with no overhead and because um, it takes – Five minutes to set up a Slack team, but you have to set one up, and then you're dealing with it. Yeah. So, um, I like there's a lot more. So, my very last point: a lot more public Slack teams starting. Like this one for Mac admins. There's a bunch mm-hmm. of them. I keep hearing about private ones that have hundreds or thousands of people. If Twitter isn't careful, some of the conversation is going to get drained off to private Slack groups where everything is controlled.
1: That's and a think, very interesting tie-in, and mm-hmm. by, on
0: the Slack that I'm on, that point has been made before too.
1: There's an awful lot of people. I've heard this from other people, but on the board I'm on with. You know, you probably know everybody who's there. It's a bunch of mutual friends. Um, but it's a relatively small group, maybe like 15 of us. Um, and and no, no, a whole bunch of them have admitted that they personally use Twitter a lot less because of this, this slack.
0: That yeah, same I, thing, I'd rather uh,
1: just communicate with this handful of good friends, people who I would like to go and have dinner and a drink with, than interact with the world at large on Twitter just because of you know a couple of knuckleheads who who make it unpleasant.
0: It's safe. You know, You know, everybody's part of the group, and uh, even if it's a, a public group, there's still an administrator who can kick anybody off. And uh, Incomparable Podcast Network, we have an incomparable Slack with, I don't know, 50 or 60 people who are involved in the many, many, many podcasts. Jason Snell has now uh, got up at the site, and um, that's where a lot of my conversation that I don't trust to do publicly anymore because – there's too many jerks on Twitter who will respond to it. I have those conversations with many of the same people who I would have on Twitter. Right. I have not privately. So, sad, but. All right. My
1: thanks to you, Glenn. You've been so generous with your time. What a great conversation. So this was a good episode. I really liked it. Uh, remember that URL. If you do use Slack, you got any interest in it, go check out the books. They're really worth it. And Slack definitely has a lot of power user stuff that you're going to be like, I didn't know I could do that. That's um, slackhelp.me. And you'll find links to both books. My thanks to our sponsors. We've got Casper, where you can go to buy a mattress. And we've got Fracture, where you can print out your photos. And uh, Global Delights Boom, which will make uh, the audio on your Mac sound a lot better. So my thanks to them.